Hey, this is Sam for Dobbs. If you need tires, hop on our website, go to Dobbs.com. We'll save you time searching brands, sizes, and prices, and save you money because we sell tires at the lowest price in town, guaranteed. For deals you can use, click on go to Dobbs.com now. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ornato lifts it high in the air to deep left center at the wall. And a ground rule double off the bat of Arnato. One to nothing, St. Louis. That scores Newt Barr. Uh-oh. That's in the gap, right center. And that ball is down. Another ground rule double, back-to-back. Arnato and Gorman, two nothing Cardinals. Out to right and a base hit. Charging Blackman. Throw to the plate, offline. Nolan Gorman has driven in three, and it's a 4-1 St. Louis lead. Nice win again for the Cardinals last night. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. They are officially 14 games above 500 for the first time this season. That is a new high watermark. They are on pace for 91 wins, 14-4 and in their last 18 games. And all that while they have the second easiest remaining strength of schedule in all of baseball. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex, this is... The team that we were hoping to see this year, and we were wondering going into this stretch of te- uh, of games against poor opponents, all right, what does a successful stretch look like? I said I wanted to see at least eight out of the 11 games result in wins for the Cardinals. Well, you started with two. You now have this series win. They're going for the sweep about an hour from now. This is a good start here. This is what you wanted to see against these poor opponents on the schedule. Absolutely. And they're doing it in different ways. It's, you know, not the... It's not the blowout games. It's not the one nothing games kind of you're getting a a nice spread of victories with these games. You're getting the bullpens contributions. You're getting elite starting pitching from these guys to begin the games and your offense is coming through like every aspect. You're starting to see what you wanted to see. And the one thing that I have noticed, at least in these last two games against Colorado, it's a really confident group that feels like they're never out of a game. And for a little stretch there in June, I couldn't say that. For a little stretch towards the beginning of the season, you couldn't say that. But now it just seems to be like if one guy's not hitting, well, then the other guy steps up. And for a while there, they didn't have that. Yeah, and for me, you're starting to see kind of that big three that we talked about in the first two games. Like you're seeing Pools is playing well against left-handed pitching. Gorman continued his stretch against right-handed pitching last night because he drove in, what was it, three if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, you're starting to see the lineup kind of piece itself together. You're starting to see kind of these platoons come together between left and right-handed pitching. 
The starting the starting pitching has been fantastic ever since the All-Star break, as we were talking about in the office. I mean, you look at the rotation, 10 quality starts since the All-Star break in 22 opportunities. Oh, and if you take out the one from Michaelis, it's almost 50% in 21 starts with an ERA around 3.2. So Damn good. Every, everything has really started to kind of settle in for the St. Louis Cardinals. And you're starting to see it. They're playing like Damn a confidence. Makes me feel good <laughs> about it. To, Easy they're, shaft. They're playing, like a, they're playing like a confident group now. And like last night's game, and you mentioned it, Alex, like, that's a game early on in the year that I feel nervous about. But yeah, they last don't win night, that game. Last night, the night before, when they went on a walk-off hit by pitch, like I just felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. I know, I know, I shouldn't have, but I felt like that was still a game they were going to win, and, and that's something I couldn't have said earlier in the year. Earlier in the year, I would have been very nervous about it. To T Bone's point about the starting pitching, you know, when we were at the trade deadline and we were talking Juan Soto, you know, I, I, I said, Good thing like, I said, I wanted to start pitching. I said uh, you need to be elite in one area. Like, that's how you're going to succeed. And at the time, I wanted it to be offense. Are are the Cardinals starting to tiptoe into that threshold of being elite in the pitch in the starting pitching category? I mean, it's it's really hard to throw that by, word around. By production, yes. When I look at the names, no. Is that does that make sense? But I'm not go, like don't even go from the names. Yeah, just go off of production. Don't don't look at it as Michaelis, Wayno, Montgomery versus Scherzer and Degrom. Look at the production that they've done since yeah. the trade deadline. By, by production, I mean Tanner just gave you the numbers. Yeah, the answer is yes. I think they've done exactly what we said they needed to do at the trade deadline. They just did it on the pitching side rather than the offensive so side. So you can even go back a little bit further than that because I wanted to go back to you remember they had that game in Toronto where you're without out or without uh, Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt. And we went into that series, the two games set, and we're like, oh, well, I mean, come on. There's there's no way they're going to win game that. Game over. I can't believe you guys that's, had no hope. That second game of the series, we came on the next day, and I remember asking Dan about it. I asked him, I said, is this the type of game that we could look back upon and say that was when the season turned around? That was the moment when we could see something special was about to happen, and that was the Albert Pujols game, right? And ever since then, Albert's been on fire. Ever since then, the pitching has been very good. Adam Wainwright was excellent in that one, and he's been really good ever since. And if you take out the one really weird, really awful, no good, very bad day for Miles Michaelis out in Colorado, which shouldn't be a major league park. It doesn't count. It's kind of like the Pirates when you throw a no-hitter against them. It doesn't count. Basically the same thing in my mind. Well, since that day, July 27th against Toronto, The Cardinals starters have thrown 109 innings, and in those 109 innings, they have a 2.3 ERA. That is elite, Alex. In that stretch, if you, again, this is taking out that one really bad, no good, very bad start, they would have the fourth best ERA in Major League Baseball. The only teams that are above them are the Dodgers, the Mets, the Astros, fifth best technically, and the Phillies. And I would say all of those teams have elite starting pitching. Dodgers, Mets, um, Astros and Phillies. Yeah. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think it's fair to say that at least by production, they have been elite over the course of the last three weeks. You now. look at all of those teams that are ahead of them. All of those teams have a Cy Young candidate in their rotation. Uh, every one of them. Cardinals, uh, some could argue that Miles Michaelis, I, I think that he's dropped off a little bit, so I don't think he's in that conversation anymore. You don't have one Cy Young candidate on that rotation, and yet you were in the same category as those teams. Again, at the trade deadline, 
I said, I think you need to go elite, go for broke on the offensive side with a Juan Soto. But the Cardinals did the opposite of that. And now they are in that elite conversation on the pitching side, which is a important factor going into the postseason. Let's narrow down this conversation with what we watched last night. We've gone back and forth on this. We've talked about it a million different times. We don't have to do it anymore, I don't think, barring something unforeseen. Jordan Montgomery is your number three starter right now. Absolutely. That guy has the swing and miss stuff that you've been looking for. He walks nobody. Like, it's remarkable. He could even get into a three and two count and he finds a way to get out of Jim it. Jim Edmonds on the broadcast last night, it was a three one count. And he said, watch, he's going to get back and he's going to strike this guy. And he struck the guy out. I it's since he has come over to the Cardinals in three starts, he has allowed a total of three walks. He has done so in more than 16 and two thirds, 16 and two thirds innings. But yeah, uh, the Yankees didn't need man. him in their rotation. I got Frankie Montas. I don't understand what the Yankees saw in this. The other, I, I think they were just flat out wrong. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, they weren't wrong because have you seen Aaron Hicks play uh, oh. center field? They, des- they desperately didn't help. They were willing to give up anything there. The, I guess I get it. The other thing about Montgomery, too, he's got the attitude. Like last night being taken out of that game with one out to go to get through six. He was pissed. He was pissed. But. Props to Ollie, who basically mouthed to him, hey, we got you, when he tried to fight to stay in. Yep. But I love the fact I liked that, that for both sides. I, I liked too. the way that Ollie approached it, and I liked the way that I, Montgomery approached it. I wish it. Jordan would have fought a little bit harder. Like, I wish he would have sat there and said, the problem is you literally cannot leave him in the game there. That's by rule. You have to take him out. But I hope that if it gets to a postseason situation, like Montgomery fights to stay in because I like that attitude. Yeah, I enjoyed the attitude from Montgomery last night because I don't know if we've really seen anybody have that attitude except for Adam Wainwright on the staff. I know Michaelis kind of I think Michaelis has it, but I don't think we've seen it in a game this year when he's gotten pulled. I, I enjoy watching Jordan Montgomery pitch, and, and it's partly because of what we were talking about. I mean, he doesn't walk anybody. I mean, his numbers are just absurd in his three starts. Opponents are hitting 203. His FIP is 1.8. Like, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. Like, that's, that's incredible. Ridiculous. And he's one of the best pitches he has is that, like, fastball that he goes across his body and he can just paint it inside. on that inside corner against righties. I don't remember who it was he was going against last night. He threw that pitch. He hit it, like, perfectly. I mean, it was, like, perfect on the corner froze the batter. I think it may have been Gritchick, actually. Froze Gritchick on that pitch, and that's what he's going to need to do against right-handed pitchers. Get inside on their hands, and he does it to perfection. He is a legitimate number three, and looking at the Yankees, say, well, we didn't see him in our playoff rotation. That, to me, is just absurd, because yeah. I watched some of the Yankees game last night. Hey, guys, they could use a guy like Jordan Montgomery to help them I out in the playoffs. I would have kept all the assets that I traded for Frankie Montas and just given Jordan Montgomery a longer leash. I mean... Just have both of them, yeah. right? Like, why not both was the the whole conversation again, about you, Soto plus pitching. That's what I would have been saying right now if I'm the but, if I'm a Yankees. But fan. again, you needed center field. You did, but we don't know if or when you're going to be able to get Harrison Bader back. It's it's a risky proposition for them. And by the way, they've been terrible since the trade deadline. So I don't think it's one to one. Like you can't do. It's they've been bad because Jordan Montgomery is no longer there. They've been bad for a lot of different have reasons, including their that? lineup. Montas's numbers since uh-uh. going there. So he's only made two starts. Uh, they are one in one of those starts. He has gone eight innings, allowed 10 hits, eight earned runs, five walks, six strikeouts, has an ERA of nine. Eight Opponents are hitting 313 against him, have an OPS of 915 against him. He's gone four innings each outing. And he's allowed eight earned runs in 10 innings? Yep. Oh, no, eight, or, or eight earned runs, runs in eight in innings. Eight innings. It's not what you want. It, it's definitely not what you want. And I, I do think like, Bringing that up is a good point to, or a good spot to kind of mention this. The Cardinals deserve a lot of credit for A, the pitchers that they identified, and also B, they made a couple of adjustments. 
The guys that they traded for, they said at the time, if they just play the way that they have all year, we'll be happy with the production that we get out of them. But they clearly saw a couple of tweaks that could be made that would help them. For Jose Quintana, he's basically ditched the changeup and he's going more with his curveball, which has been an out pitch for him this year. And it's been two optimal results. With Montgomery, he's talked about this a couple of times now, as have the Cardinals and Ollie Marmol, about how his glove side fastball going inside on on guys that is something that he did not do a lot of with the Yankees and they started doing it more and that's opening up some of the strikeout stuff that he has because his fastball plays up I gotta give a lot of credit to the Cardinals because this is the same thing that happened last year the guys that they traded for at the deadline ended up having much better results here whether it's because of the ballpark the defense the pitching uh, arsenal that they decided to go with whatever the reasoning you think it is they have a knack now for identifying the types of guys that can work here and making a couple of tweaks within the pitch usage that will make them even more effective than what they were with their previous team. And for this one, the reason why I think it's so impressive is because the Yankees are really good at developing talent in their pitching staff. They've been awesome at that. In fact, some teams are trying to pull from what they're doing pitching lab-wise to use that in their pitching development plans. So I got to give a lot of a lot of credit to the Cardinals for that. Yeah, I, I think it's impressive seeing what they what they've done because last year, like last year, was just kind of okay. We just need guys to fill innings, and we think if they pitch to our defense, then it's going to be effective. And it was. And then you look at this year. I mean, they basically doubled the ante. Like this wasn't just we're going to fill innings. This was okay. We're going to go find the number three starter. And I said at the time, I didn't think Montgomery was that guy. I didn't think Quintana was that guy. That's why I was hesitant to really give them an A on the trade deadline because sure they went out and got starters but I didn't think they f- identified the guys that were going to fit in that, into that role and I was just wrong Montgomery is a legitimate number three for this rotation which is going to help them in the playoffs and he could be an awesome number four if Jack Flaherty gets back and can be that number three for the Cardinals and Quintana like look I thought Quintana was just like the perfect number five I mean he's pushing to be the number four in the <laughs> yeah, playoffs he's and pushing it, to be the number three right uh, now yeah and, and the fact of the matter that not only was it just, okay, he's going to come in, he's going to give you starts in the regular season, then you don't have to worry about him in the postseason. Now I'm looking at him and I'm going, boy, man, that's going to be a hell of a weapon out of my bullpen if Quintana's not a starter. Like, it's impressive to see that the Cardinals have identified, once again, left-handers, shocker, lefters, left-handers, that took the next step and can become those number three for the Cardinals. And the best part about the Montgomery deal, hey, that guy's going to be here next year too. And that's what's also impressive because I thought – they were going to look for somebody that had team control for another year to help for the rotation next year. And they're able to identify him and pull off the trade for uh, for Jordan Montgomery. And honestly, a deal that is looking bad on the Yankees part, but we'll see what Harrison Bader does for them. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. In 15 minutes, we're talking about the Blues front office. Dom over at The Athletic. Oh, of course, oh, it's Dom over this at guy. The Athletic. He wrote another piece. And actually, it's pretty optimistic about the outlook for the Blues moving forward because it's based on fan optimism. We'll do that coming up in 15 minutes. But next, we are going to talk about Paul DeYoung. Are you done with Paul DeYoung already? It's been six games of poor production offensively. And whoo, buddy, Cardinals fans are ready to turn that over at shortstop. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. <laughs> It's the lineup game. 
Yeah. I love day games. They're the absolute best because it gives us the opportunity to steal a segment from the fast lane. And By the way, I'll be on with uh, nobody can threaten us. Jamie Rivers from two to six. Oh, you're dead. Decided today is a day that ends in Y. So I'll do seven hours of radio. Why not? Hey, I'll be there tomorrow with you, big boy. Sounds good. Not seven. You'll be there for five. Oh, oh. One oh, up you a little bit. Oh, Sorry. Someone has to one up everyone in the building, huh? All right, let's play You're the lineup. Game. The hardest oh, worker in the building, yeah, BK, right. ladies yeah. and gentlemen. You know it. What time right. did you get here today? Who takes the most vacations in the building? That guy. That guy. I brought it upon By the myself. Way, I'll be off for the last week of August. I'll be out for basically the month of October. <laughs> no big deal. There's nothing happening with the Cardinals in October, right? <laughs> no. Well, they'll be. They'll be bounced I'll be in, in the New wild card. They're playing in the NLCS. It'll be awesome. Be All right. in the wild card. So, Sinzatel is on the mound for the Rockies. He is a what, Good job, Alex? Got that right. Righty. He's a righty. That, that means is indeed lefties. correct. So, at the top of the lineup, I think we can go ahead and get this one. They have Tommy established Edwin. what it's going to be. That is not what they would establish. I would go Lars Newtbar off the top. Brendan Donovan batting second. What do you think, Alex? You good with that? I feel like it's, today's a Corey Dickerson kind of day, right? Uh, show Lars us Lars Newbar. Newt! <laughs> show us Brendan Donovan! The flow! By the way, the helmet stayed on. I know, what the hell? Did he get a new helmet? What's going on here? I think I think Ollie we was done with us. We need an investigation. We're going to ruin our t-shirt, I guess. Ollie said shenanigans. If Danny Mac was a real journalist with a capital J, he would be out there trying to get to the bottom of this. He would tell Jim Hayes, Jim, yesterday you got to the bottom of the Randall Gritchick storyline. Today... We need to hear about Brendan Donovan's helmet. Regional cable journalism. Get on that. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Show me Paul Goldschmidt. <laughs> Goldie, big fundy. Show me Arenado. Arenado. All right. Now is where it gets fun. Do you think Goldie is batting, or do you think he's playing first today, or do you think he's getting a day at DH? I think he's playing first because you're not playing pools at first. Donovan could. I think Donovan, Donovan played a game at first this year. I think so, yeah. Gorman's going to be playing today, right? I think he'll be batting fifth. So yeah. that's why I think Donovan's going to be your DH. Unless they want Gorman DH. I don't know. I think they probably go Gorman DH you know what? today. Because Gorman was at second yesterday. This is the lineup game. This is in the position game. Touche. So we're I not going to worry about that. It helps us a little bit with who's going to be no, in the lineup later on. But Are we yeah. going Nolan Gorman here? Yeah. All right, Nolan Gorman. Storm and Gorman. Now's where it gets interesting. Is this Paul DeYoung? Or is this Dylan Carlson? No, see, I think Carlson. Carlson's going to be batting ninth, I think, again. So yesterday, this is where they had Corey Dickerson. I don't think you're playing The question Dickerson. is, are you going to Tyler O'Neill today? Was yesterday a day off? Or was yesterday a sign that they are now platooning left field? From Ollie's comments, I don't believe they're going to platoon. I feel like that was a day off for Tyler O'Neill. I think so, too. I think the bottom of our lineup, nine is Carlson, eight is Yachty. And then we've got to figure out what to do with six and seven. And that's the shortstop and left field spots. So I would go O'Neal DeYoung. I think I'm with you. Let's go O'Neal. Let's go O'Neal here. Or is Edmund playing? Let's start with O'Neal. O'Neal. Bro, O'Neal. Okay. So is this Edmund or is this DeYoung? I think it's DeYoung. I... We'll talk about this after we're done with the lineup game, but I think they're sticking with Paul DeYoung and they're just going to live with the the ups and the downs. And they know that this is going to be a roller coaster ride with him. You're going to deal with a bunch of strikeouts, but he also has the potential to hit one over the over the wall at any point in time. And he's going to play really good defense for you at short. And I also think that Tommy Edmond was exhausted by the time that they had moved back to Paul DeYoung at shortstop. Okay, I'll I'll trust in you. We'll go Paul DeYoung bold strategy. Backwards. Okay. And now I should have listened to myself. Tommy Edmund. Then Tommy Edmund. 
Okay. Who the bleep is playing shortstop? Well, maybe is Dylan Carlson hitting higher up? And have they moved Tommy Edmond to the nine hole? Ah, that's an interesting way to look. Yeah, let's do Carlson here. Okay. So then Molina. Oh, get it, BK. Show it to Ryder. By the way, I think Danny Mac's calling you after you calling him out. So maybe you should go answer that. I love you, Dan. So this is Tommy Edmond. Interesting. So they, okay. they're giving Paul DeYoung the day off like they gave Tyler O'Neill the day off. So here's your guys' lineup for today. Lars Newpar lean off and right. Brendan Donovan, the DH. Paul Goldschmidt at first. Nolan Arnato at third. Nolan Gorman at second. Tyler O'Neill at left. Dylan Carlson at center field. Yadier Molina catching. And then Tommy Edmond is batting ninth at short today. Interesting. And your starter on the mound, Adam Wayne. All right. I don't have an issue with that. Paul DeYoung lost his job again. Let's talk about that. Let's get into this a little bit. So I think everything one through five, I think is now your established one through five against right-handed pitching. Newt, Donovan, Goldie, Arenado, Gorman. That's your one through five right now. And then it completely changes against left-handed pitching. In that scenario, you would go with uh, Carlson, Edmund, those two at the top, depending on the order, Goldie, Arenado, and then you've got Pujols five. I think they've established what the top of five of the order looks like, and now they're trying to figure out what's our depth. What does 6-7 look like behind those guys? And in that scenario last night was Dickerson and DeYoung, and tonight it's O'Neal and Carlson. So it is completely flipped in terms of who you guys, who you have in that part of the order. I think they're going to live with whatever they get out of Paul DeYoung offensively. I saw on social media last night, and some of this is just the way that social media is. People overreact one way or the other at all times. It's a happy place all Carpenter the time. Carpenter was here. I love Twitter. Everything on social media was negative about him. You would go to the ballpark and people would be thrilled to see Matt Carpenter coming up to the plate. So it's just keep in mind for me, I have to think about this a lot. That's not necessarily real life. But Paul DeYoung's three for his last 22. He struck out in 50% of those at bats over the last six games. It's been bad. He does not look good at the plate right now. However, it's six games, man. And I expected him to go through some slumps like this whenever he came back up to the big leagues because this is the player that he is. And I think he's embracing it. I think he now knows I'm a 220 to 240 hitter. That That's where I'm going to live. And the hope is I take enough walks and I hit for enough power that it makes up for that lack of batting average by the end of the year. We'll see if it works. I don't know if it will or not, but... I think that's who he is as a player, and I think the Cardinals know that's who he is as a player, and they're willing to live with some of these these ups and downs. And I think you're going to see him right back into the lineup whenever they go out to Arizona for this weekend. I think that's the way they're going to play. I think he's your everyday shortstop for the rest of the season, regardless of what the offense looks like. Yeah, I'm kind of there with you. I, the thing about it is, like, you were sent to the minors because they can't have you going through those slumps. And to go through that slump that quick since you've been recalled, I mean, that's a little concerning in this circumstance. But... I don't know if Brendan Donovan's playing shortstop for you. I don't, I, I mean, the thing about with Paul DeYoung is if Brendan Donovan and Nolan Gorman are hitting, Tommy Edmond can play shortstop. And if Paul DeYoung's not hitting, and if Gorman and Donovan are, then do you take the chance that Tommy Edmond can start to get a little bit hotter and play the shortstop position, and then you've got more everyday at-bats for Brendan Donovan and Nolan Gorman? Like, that's the internal debate that I would imagine Ollie and his staff are having before each game. I'm with you. I think we'll see Paul DeYoung in the lineup tomorrow. I think today's a, a day off. But if he keeps going through these slumps and Donovan keeps getting on base and Gorman keeps hitting, 
you got to keep getting these guys at bats and you're not going to play them in the outfield. But you've said this about the outfield over the last couple of days, and I think it's a good point. I think it's the way that the Cardinals are eventually going to go. They're living with the offensive struggles based on the defense that they have because their identity is now pitching in defense. Once again, they, they have gotten to the end of the year and it feels like every year we do this midway through the season. We flip towards the offense by the end of the year. We're back to ah, defense is really important and we need it for our pitchers. You're giving up a lot defensively. If you go with that middle infield over guys like Tommy Edmond and Paul DeYoung. So I, I, and I think with the pitching staff that you have, the infield defense is even more important than what you have in the outfield. I think you're giving, I don't think you're giving up more defensively infield than you would outfield in the scenario of a Corey Dickerson or Brendan Donovan playing more and taking Carlson and O'Neill out. I think you're giving up defensively if Gorman's playing second base, but I don't think you're giving up defensively if Edmonds at short and Donovan's at second base. Sure, but Edmund wasn't part of this scenario. You were talking about Gorman and Donovan. No, I'm talking right? Edmund at shortstop and more at bats between Donovan and Gorman. Gorman in terms of one's playing second base and the other's BDH. Hitting. So I like I that's that's the internal debate. Do you want Paul DeYoung who's not hitting or Tommy Edmund who's not hitting? DeYoung, because I've seen that DeYoung can handle that position. But then and you've got two guys not down. hitting rather than one guy not hitting. Well, the guy that I would take out of the lineup in this scenario is Tommy Edmund. See, I think I would take pitching. Paul DeYoung out of the lineup over Tommy Edmund. I got a lot of guys that do what Paul DeYoung does. I don't have a lot of guys with Tommy Edmund does if Tommy Edmund's right. But what right. is Tommy Edmund doing against right handed well, pitching right what now? What I said when he's right and he gets on base, he gets... If that happens, then I'm willing to change my tune on this. But right now, Tommy Edmund isn't hitting against right-handed pitching, so I'm going to put one of those other guys in that you talked about. But that's what I'm saying. You got two guys that are in slumps. Which one do you want to give more playing time to so that they can try and get out of that slump? And I think I would lean more towards Tommy Edmund because Tommy Edmund does a lot for me. I've got the Paul DeYoung's. If Tyler O'Neill's continuing to play, that's Paul DeYoung for me. If Nolan Gorman's playing, that's Paul DeYoung for me. Yeah, I for me, it's just young. Like I'm just going with Paul DeYoung at my at the shortstop position and then I'll figure it out at second. And I think they have a lot of different answers potentially at second base. You look at what they have. You have a platoon there now. I think that it is officially a platoon between Gorman, Donovan and Edmund. Those guys that the two lefties that can play against right handed pitchings. They'll be either at second or a DH on any of those days, as you're seeing today with Donovan at DH and Gorman at second base. And then against left-handed pitching, you're going to go with Tommy Edmond at second. And he just, it's a straight platoon at that spot. I've got no problems with that. I think yep. that's the way you should be handling it there. And you let DeYoung take the vast majority of the starts at shortstop. And if Tommy Edmond starts hitting again, the way that he did at the beginning of the year, that's when I'll flip it. But for right now, I, I have no reason to do that. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I I don't I don't think it's that much of a. I I would rather stick with DeYoung at shortstop over the Edmund scenario at shortstop, just because I view shortstop as being a much uh, more position defined by defense than second base. I've said this multiple times. Like, I know that you've made the argument that like you should keep Tommy Edmond because I he's do good agree defensively. With that. I, I agree that shortstop I, is a more know, premium I, position. But I, I I know you've argued. Well, I would keep Edmund at second base because he's better defensively, and I I view it as okay. Well, second base I don't view as having needing that much good a defense, so I can live with like Nolan Gorman, who honestly I think's been pretty solid defensively. So I don't know if how it's a downgrade, but I don't think it's like a massive drop off. But yeah, I would probably stick with Paul DeYoung for now. I think you give him another pretty decent stretch of starts, probably until like early September. That way you see if he can turn it around. Because I, I do think that the Cardinals, and they haven't said this publicly, but I think they've thought this internally. I think, you know, we say, like, the Cardinals offense can't reach its peak without Tyler O'Neill being himself. I think part of that, too, is if Paul DeYoung isn't hitting for power and he's not hitting, like, 220, 230, the offense is going to struggle to reach its peak as well. Because they there's a reason they continue to give him starts 
early in the year was because they thought he could find that form. And let's be honest, if Paul DeYoung hits 230 and is able to provide some power for you, that's a solid number six, seven hitter for you, and it it deepens this lineup. So I think you continue to give DeYoung a stretch of starts, and I think you platoon at second base, kind of like what I think they have been doing. I do think today is just kind of an off day for DeYoung, and I think you go back to him tomorrow when you're in Arizona. There's some massive news in the NHL. It does affect the Western Conference, including a Western Conference contender. Tell you what that is, how it impacts the Blues, coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Air Comfort Service X line. You heard it in the update. Tanner ruining the segment. Our once show again. is important, Tanner, and you keep ruining it. Yeah, that's Big news in the NHL, according to Kevin Weeks. Cha-ching. The Calgary Flames are working on a potential deal to move Sean Monahan. They are also expected to sign Nazem Kadri. So the rumors for the last few weeks of Nazem Kadri signing with the Islanders appear to be false. He is now going to be a Calgary Flame. Uh, first of all, let's start with the Flames. They're going to be legitimately good this year. Yeah. Like for them to go happened? through what they did with Johnny Gaudreau taking them up until the very last minute and then saying, ah, sorry, it's not you. It's me. Actually, it is you. I don't want to be there anymore. I'm going to go somewhere closer to home and stringing that thing along as as long as he could. And then they were just kind of left standing there being like, oh, what is our backup plan? And then, of course, Matthew Kachuk saying, ah, Gaudreau's gone. I am too. Peace. And for them to be able to get two really high-level players out of that deal is incredibly impressive work by their general manager. And now, to I mean, it's not a one-for-one. One. They're different players. They're different ages, and they go about it a little differently. But to replace Johnny Gaudreau with Nazem Kadri, who was arguably the top center on the market this offseason other than Gaudreau, uh, super impressive, man. I got to give them their credit. They're one of the best teams in the West once again, and it's expected to be that way at least now for the next couple of years. They, with this move, are the best team in the Pacific Division. Better than the Edmonton Oilers, better than the LA Kings, better than the San Jose Sharks, Vegas, go through the list. They're better than all of them. I'd put them on the same level as the Colorado Avalanche. Now, if not better than Colorado, from the moves that had happened to them and what Calgary's done. I mean, Calgary's top six now, if this cadre thing to be true, Huberdo, Maggiapani, Blake Coleman, Elias Lindholm, Tyler Toffoli, Nazem Kadri. That is a... A unbelievable top nine. And the highest paid player is, of course, Huberto after this season. But going into this season, the highest paid player is probably going to be Nazem Kadri. So, like, they have built a really good team. Brad Trey Living is, in my opinion, the general manager of the year before the season even begins for what he just put together. The question now becomes, is Nazem Kadri a product of Nathan McKinnon and Landis and Rantanen in the Colorado Avalanche, or is this the type of player he truly is? I mean, even if he is closer to what he was previously, you've got the threats next to him that he's going to be able to be pretty damn impressive this year, too. Calgary is Calgary is a, a juggernaut, in my opinion, right now. I mean, they had a goaltender who... Is Calgary better than you? Yes. The Blues? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, they yeah, have so they have the best defensive core in the Western Conference now that they have made the trade to get Mackenzie Weger on top of what they already had. Their goaltender, although I don't trust him in the playoffs, Jacob Markstrom, he was a Vezina candidate. Well, that's true. He was a Vezina. I mean, the guy lost to Mike Smith and the Edmonton Oilers, guys. But he was a Vezina candidate in the regular season. And now, I mean, you've got a 30-goal scorer in Tyler Toffoli. You've got a 25-goal scorer in Blake Coleman. You've got Huberdeau, one of the best players in the game. I mean, they have put together a really good team on top of having a Daryl Sutter as the head coach. This is the best team 
on paper, I think, in the Western Conference going into ahead this season. Colorado. Ahead of Colorado. Because of the changes that happened to Colorado. Colorado's going to... I would still go Colorado 1, and I would have Calgary 2. Colorado's got an unknown goaltender. They've got Kale McCarr and Devontae Last still. year, they had a, a basically traffic cone in front of net, and they won the Stanley Cup. He couldn't see out of one eye. Understandable. <laughs> but I think Calgary's defense is better than Colorado's in terms of as a whole. Colorado's got the better defenders, but Calgary's got Cal- depth. I'm going to do the thing that is like really hard to argue with. I'll take Kale McCarr That's and figure fine. out the rest. But I'm, I'm going <laughs> off of depth here. They've got the depth. And then forward position, I mean, look, Colorado lost Kadri. They lost Burakovsky. They re-signed Nachushkin. And they still have Lekkonen. McKinnon's still there? Again, I'm not I know gonna have that this it is totally unfair for me to do this. I'm not going to have this damn <laughs> argument with you. Just play the ace in I, the hole. I just think that like what we saw from them at the deadline last year is probably something similar to what you'll see from them this year. If their depth is not enough, they, they will find a way, and I trust their front office, to go out there and acquire depth. Because it's easier to acquire the depth than it is the, the studs. Um, but I, I think that at a minimum, like to your point, Alex, and I'm, I'm just giving you a hard time. At a minimum, the the Flames are now back into that discussion. Like whether you think one is ahead of the other, yeah. they're or the vice best versa. team in the Pacific, and there's no argument there for me. And I would put them over Edmonton every day of the week now. So, here's another thing. Now, like it, it's taking this to the next step, that's how it affects the race in the Western Conference. What does this mean for the Blues? How do they either benefit or does this hurt them at all? I, I think there are. Two sides to this. One, this means that the Islanders are now left without that stud that they were looking for forward-wise. And there are none left. Kadri was the last one that could really improve their top six in a significant way. And that's, of course, always been one of the questions of, could that be a landing spot for Vladimir Tarasenko? So you've got that side of things. Their impact to the Islanders are by Kadri now being off of the market. And then, secondarily, You've got Sean Monahan, who is now a new member of the potential trade targets on the market. Alex, how do you think that this impacts the Blues for for Vladdy, for the Islanders, for Monahan? Do they play into this at all? The Island. Let's start with the Islanders. The Islanders are an interesting one. Um, I mean, we've talked about them at nauseum, and nothing really makes sense because you would be flipping Vladdy for one of their forwards. Because that, in my opinion, is the only trade that makes sense with New York, and. There's really not a whole lot of guys like you're not getting Matthew Barzell. You're not getting Anders Lee from the Islanders. You don't want Anthony Beauvier. There's two guys that you would look at, Josh Bailey and Jean-Gabriel Pajot. Bailey, from talking our Islanders guy, Grant Francis, he doesn't think that's a better trade. And Pajot, Pajot's a good player, but he's a center. And you're trading a winger who could potentially score you 40 goals this season. Like, I don't think a trade with the Islanders makes you a better team. So I don't really know if there's anything there. I'll tell you, Sean Monaghan is actually a really intriguing name. Now, What happened to him last year? I think Daryl Sutter happened, happened to him last year. Like, if you look at his numbers, he trailed off once Daryl Sutter took over. And the, 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 the bubble season, he struggled in. And then last season, he was injured and just really struggled. Is that a concern, though, given the fact that... I mean, it's not one-to-one, but They're different. there are some similarities... In terms of the the system, what you do here versus what I don't think it was the system. I think it's the demand from the coach. Like Daryl Sutter is a is I mean he's a hard ass. Craig Berube is a hard ass, but Craig Berube is a player's coach. Everyone that plays for him talks about how much they love playing for him. He he might be one of those guys that needs a change of scenery. I mean, look, go back to two seasons ago. He had forty eight points in seventy games, twenty two goals. The season prior to that, he had back to back thirty goal seasons. He's a stud of a player. He plays the penalty kill. He can be on the power play. He's a centerman. He's good at the faceoffs. 
the question is, and look, he's only got one. This is his final season at $6.3 million. For what it's worth, he starts in the offensive zone like 70% of the time. They clearly do not trust him in the defensive zone. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if there's a trade to be had there. Is your team better if you acquire Sean Monaghan and trade Vladimir Tarasenko? I mean, I can argue both sides of that because you're losing a guy who knows the system and is a sniper, but you're trading for a guy who can play center, play the wing, and also score you 30 goals. You're hoping that you get it out of him, though. I would, because Calgary has to move him for Nazem Kadri, I at least would check in on it. But again, you would have to ship somebody who's making that amount of money elsewhere and then trade whatever it would take to get Sean Monahan from the Calgary Flames. So I don't know if your team is better, but. I would at least look into finding a way to try and make something work because Sean Monahan, he's 27 years old. He's going into his unrestricted free agency. He needs a change of scenery. He was a leader for Calgary for multiple years. And maybe if you put him in a different team, he has more success. I think I would rather have Pajot. I, I think like if you were telling me one for one, which if you could acquire both of them and it's it's basically a you get this guy, we trade you Vladdy. I would rather have Pajot if that's going to be the deal that you're looking at. I, I just think he's a better player and I can trust him more immediately here as opposed to, I, I don't know what you, you might be getting damaged goods with a guy like Monahan. I, he might be really good for you next year, or he could be just a train wreck in his career started off really hot. And now you've seen over the last couple of seasons, this is the player that he's going to be in the future. He's a good player on a losing team, a bottom six player on a winning team. That would be my concern with him. I would rather go with a Pajot route, and if they let's go down this hypothetical road together really quick, Alex, if they did go down that path and they ended up trading Vladdy to New York because they are so desperate right now for a winger, a scoring threat for them. And you got Pajot, you have now opened up a couple million dollars and we have now seen there are reports on what it's going to potentially take to acquire Jacob Chikrin. In this scenario, could you then flip? like a Marco Scandella, a couple of first-round picks, one of your top prospects, most likely either Bolduc or Perunovic, depending on which one they like, and then go out there and also get a guy like Jacob Chikrin. Is that something that would make some sense? Because now you've opened up about $6 million in terms of the money yeah. and by getting rid of Scandella and taking on $2 million less than the Tarasenko deal. So you do have the cap to then be able to acquire a Jacob Chikrin. Would you be interested in doing something like that? Let me just clarify. So your scenario, you're acquiring a forward and you're trading for Jacob Chikrin. Correct. So you've got Pajot. You're getting Pajot from the Islanders and then you're trading for Jacob Chikrin. Correct. You can do it. The question becomes, are you shipping out more than what you're bringing in? Because I think you now have an elite defensive unit if you do that. Because your left side now is a third well, line. you're getting rid of Krug and Scandella. Not getting rid of Krug in this scenario. You're just getting to so Tarasenko straight up for Pajot. You're getting rid of $2.5 million against the cap there. Then you are trading um, Scandella in this deal down to Arizona. So you're getting rid of $3 million there. You are now, you have enough one for one to be able to bring in the money from Chikrin. $4.7 million this year. You have an elite. So you have Krug, you have Letty, you have Chikrin on the left side. You have an elite defense but your offense, I feel like, has taken a step backwards because I don't, I don't think Pajot is at the same level as Vladimir Tarasenko in terms of the goal-scoring ability. Like, you're bringing in another center, and you're hoping Braden Shen can become a goal-scorer on the wing or Pajot can be a goal-scorer on the wing. I would actually probably opt more for the Monaghan over the Pajot if I'm moving Vladdy just because this is a guy, and maybe I'm mistaken on this, but has Pajot scored 30 goals in a season? No, he's been he's more of a twenty goal scorer, fifteen yeah. to twenty. So, so you're bringing in you're bringing in 
20 goal score here. I, I this would get you back to the identity that you had previously. It would be more of a defensive core, but it's obviously a different identity defensively. By committee but, offensively. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I would do those trades. I think if it were me, I would probably just stand pat. And, and for those wondering, like the Jacob Chikrin thing, the Ottawa Senators are investigating this. And, and from what reports are coming out, Arizona wants from Ottawa two first round draft picks. They want a high level, high level prospect. And Ottawa wants Arizona to take on their defenseman, Nikita Zaitsev, who essentially is Marco Scandell. Yeah. He's making like four and a half million dollars for the next two years. So the potential is there. But I think if you're do if you're shipping Vladdy, you got to get something back that's at the same level as Vladdy, and I don't think Pajot's at. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in 15 minutes, can Nolan Gorman and Tyler O'Neill combine to be the offensive player that the Cardinals wanted O'Neill to be? We'll talk about that coming up at 12 o'clock. Coming up next, though, six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service X line. Questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101. ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's VK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 314. Guys, there's been so much talk of the Cardinals having the second easiest schedule in the major leagues for the remainder of the season, but. Is it fair to keep banking on an easy schedule just based on the fact that even when they have had to play bad teams, at times the Cardinals have struggled as a team and as an organization against them? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's fair to bank on that, but obviously you have it in the back of your mind. Like when we when the Cardinals take on Atlanta next weekend, all of us are going to be saying, okay, you did it against Colorado and all these teams, but you got to do it against the best of the best. You want to be the man, you got to beat the man. So I don't think it's fair to bank on it, but I think it's always going to be in the back of people's minds. Yeah, I, I only, I really don't read too much into these games against these bad teams unless you drop two or three. Like the worst thing that can happen for me is that I end up viewing the team differently because they lay an egg. Like if they were to drop two or three this series to Colorado, they're not. They're going for sweep. They're minimum one and two or three, which is good. But only these kind of series can I ever just take something bad away. I never really gain anything from these series. It's when they're playing in Atlanta when I start to go, okay, now how do they measure up against one of the best in the NL East? Or how do they measure up against one of the best in the NL West or this playoff contender? That's when I really judge them. I, I don't really bank much on these games against these below 500 teams. Hey, you just got to bank wins. That's the yeah. goal right now is now, like, they're on pace currently to win 91 games. By the end of this stretch, you should be on pace to win 95. That's the way that I look at these games is it's just a way for you to rack up those wins by the end of the season. And that's what you should be doing in this division in particular. You you should down the stretch be able to take advantage of those games against the teams in your division that traded away half of their quality players. That's what you do. So uh, it's I, I think that has there been too much that's been made of it? No, because this is this is the way that it should be going right now. And so far, the first two games of the stretch, they've done a really good job of taking advantage of it. From the 314, guys, what do you think that the Cardinals can learn from the Braves model of bringing guys up and then extending them once they've found out whether or not they can play at this level? Is that something that the Cardinals should do? Or is this something specific to the Braves, given how high of a level of prospects they've been bringing? Yeah, up? what they can learn from them is don't do it for pitchers, do it for position players. I do think that's a really important <laughs> lesson to be learned from the Braves. Because in all reality, if the Cardinals came out today and said Jordan Walker, an eight-year, $9 million per year contract extension, Ugh. I wouldn't be upset about it. I think that's a great deal. But, like, 
they've done it with pitching in the past and it has not worked out. So that's where I would say uh, follow the Braves model. Give it to the position players. Don't give it to the pitchers. My opinion, there's not much to learn from it. Like, I don't think the Cardinals would build this way. I, I just don't. I don't see them calling guys up and signing them with big contract extensions. Not those eight-year ones. We've seen them do it in the past. Like, the Colton Wong extension was, what, like five years, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I, I think part of it is, like, look, the Braves are doing it, and right now it looks like a success. But I think it's such a big gamble that I, I'm so anti-against it. I wouldn't want to see the Cardinals do it just because we've seen them give out extensions before. And look, some have worked and some haven't. I would say they're probably at, what, 50% success rate when it comes to extensions mm-hmm. during most tenure. I mean, you look at some. The first Matt Carpenter extension was great. Uh, you look at the Wong one, it was fine. But there are some that you look at, like the Alan Craig extension ended up really hurting them. Now, they were able to move on from that contract. I was about to say, I wouldn't say it hurt same them. From the, same from work. the Piscotti one. Piscotti's contract extension they were able to move on from, but it didn't work out. So like I, that's why I'm so hesitant to hand out contract extensions. I think they're just too risky for guys that, look, I don't know what you read into to them as. Like, we were talking about O'Neill as an extension this past offseason. What would we think of that now if they signed him to a Disaster. five-year contract extension worth i don't know say 15 million a year it'd be a bad contract right now so i think baseball's too unpredictable that's why i don't like doing extensions even though you could end up like having a good contract like albies where you look at and go boy this is such a steal i think it's just too risky and i i just i would hope that cardinals avoid those i think the way that i look at it now is guys like DeYoung, guys like piscotti guys like even colton wong to a degree and like uh, every pitcher if you don't have star level potential, I'm not signing you to a long-term deal. I would rather just go year to year because the way that the market now treats those players, you can get them on a one-year $10 million deal. Guys like Jock Peterson are available every offseason, yeah. every single offseason. So if you think that you've got a player that is projecting to be a platoon guy or projects to be really good defensively, maybe we'll never really get there offensively. Those guys don't get paid on the market big money for multiple years. They just don't. And pitchers don't get paid typically unless they're superstars, big money for long-term deals. So those are the guys that I'm just putting off to the side. Now, you want to talk about Jordan Walker? You want to talk about Mason Wynn if he becomes the type of player that they think he can be? You want to talk about even Nolan Gorman if he ends up being a really good player over the next couple of years and sustains the success that we're seeing right now? Yeah, okay. Then we can talk about the longer-term deals that end up becoming potentially team-friendly. But... Right now, there's nobody on this team that I would be talking extension with in the offseason. Nobody, not a single person. Yeah, that, that's something that I would say. Like, if you told me what's a thing that the Cardinals should do in the offseason, mine would be put the phone down and don't call any of your players for a yeah. contract extension. And I'll tell you why. I, one reason I wouldn't consider the, a Nolan Gorman one, and I would maybe more of the Walker one, is I, because I think, one, Walker has kind of that star potential. I think Gorman has that, too. But I think Walker's going to hit for average, and I think that's a little bit of a difference maker for me because if you're hitting for average, it means you put the ball in play, which means you probably got your. I suspect your home run power will stay with you. With Gorman, I mean, you look at Paul DeYoung. Paul DeYoung doesn't hit for average, and then his home runs can drop down as well. So like, that's part of my concern. Is Gorman was top prospects. DeYoung never was. I get and it. I think but there's a big difference it, between the two. I also, Gorman's strikeout rate isn't as bad as I was expecting it to be. Thirty percent, th- but that's kind of within the range i just see gorman having such a where his if his average isn't like 250 260 you're not seeing 30 35 home runs which is the potential for him i think if, if his average dips you're looking at like a o'neill-esque season kind of so that's why i don't like don't like the idea of a gorman extension he walks though o'neill doesn't and he consistently hits the crap out of the ball whereas o'neill has been very inconsistent in both his minor and major league career with the way that his approach goes 
I would be more apt to do it with Gorman, but again, I'm not doing that now. I'm waiting probably when I would start approaching Gorman would be after next season. That would be when I would potentially start talking to him. And it, you were not talking about $100 million. I would do like a six-year deal where I'm buying out one or two of his free agency seasons potentially. And it's going to be cheap on the front end. You're giving him like $5 million for the first two years. And then you get into like seven and then 10. It would be more in the Aussie Albies range. That That's not going to kill you. Even if he ends up being just an average player, that's something that you can get out of the way that you did with the Colton Wong contract wouldn't, extension. Wouldn't touch it with a 100-foot pole. We just disagree, and I'd like to manage against you. Oh, All right, let's oh, get into okay. this final question Same. here from the 314. Guys, if you were in a fantasy football draft today, who would be your top three picks? For me, Christian McCaffrey still number one. His upside is so unbelievably high that I would be taking him number one in my fantasy draft. I like know to, you'd like to manage against me. Number like to, two, Jonathan Taylor. Taylor. You want to take the dude who gets injured in week three and doesn't return until all week these 15? Guys, all the running backs get injured. Jonathan Taylor didn't. Feeling yeah, not little, yet. Feeling a little Zeke action over there, too? Yeah. Yeah. Number two. No, he's like a fourth round pick this year. Number two, I would like go Josh Jonathan Jacobs. Taylor. And then number three, take your favorite of Cooper Cup or Justin Jefferson. One of those two guys. That would be the way that I would approach the top three right now. Yeah, I don't. I'm not going um, Christian McCaffrey. Jonathan Taylor would be number one for me. Um, I think I would actually go then two wide receivers after that. It would be Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase. Wow. Mm -hmm. Not Cooper Cup. No, because I'm worried about the situation in LA right hey, now. El, he said his elbow's fine. He threw 100 balls or something. Yeah, Dak said day. that too going oh, into God. training camp last year and look what happened. I, I would still have McCaffrey in my top three. I don't know if I'd have him at number one just because of what BK was saying. If he's healthy, his upside's tremendous. He's going to be using the passing game. He's going to be the leading rusher. Hell, he might be the leading receiver. Uh, and then I would definitely have Jonathan Taylor up there. I would still take Cooper Cup even if, I, I, look, I think Stafford's going to be fine. He, and he's the number one target. That offense is built basically around Cooper Cup. They try to get him the ball as much as possible in a game. So those would probably be my top three as well. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Believe it or not, coming up in 15 minutes. But next, can Nolan Gorman and Tyler O'Neill combine to be the offensive player that the Cardinals wanted O'Neill to be going into this season? I'll tell you next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. in the gap right center and that ball is down another ground rule double back to back Arenado and Gorman two nothing Cardinals out to right and a base hit charging Blackman throw to the plate offline Nolan Gorman is driven in three and it's a 4-1 St. Louis lead with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kiley that was a nice night again from Nolan Gorman and Alex, I feel like we're sleeping a little bit on what Nolan Gorman has really done since he has come up for the Cardinals. His production offensively has been everything you could have asked for and then some. In his last 13 games, he's batting 350 with an, a slugging percentage of 705. That would be an okay OPS for a young player that was making his way up. He's only striking out 27% of the time. He's got a perfectly adequate walk rate in this as well. This is the Nolan Gorman that we had been sold by the Cardinals, and he's finally coming due. There was somebody that asked a question last night of, are, are we underselling what he's been doing, and, and why is that? And I think it's pretty simple. If I had to guess as to why he's kind of gone under the radar, it's because of Albert Pujols. Because 
Albert has been performing at such a high level against left-handed pitching lately that there are some, many, in fact, that would like to see him play more. And the result of Albert playing more would be Gorman getting less opportunities. I know he's been playing second the last couple of days, but most of his opportunities have come at DH. He's been your guy against right-handed pitching, and then you've had Albert go out there against left-handed pitching. And combined, they have made for one hell of a DH duo, one of the more productive DH duos in the National League over the last few weeks. Now, I wanted to talk, though, about another pairing that could combine to be the offensive player that the Cardinals needed. Today, you've got Nolan Gorman batting fifth. You've got Tyler O'Neill batting sixth. But between those two, I think that you have now found a way to get basically one really strong number five hole hitter. You've got Albert and Gorman and then O'Neill fitting into this mix as well. Do you think Gorman against right-handed pitching and O'Neill against left-handed pitching can, in your mind, Alex, combine to be the player that the Cardinals wanted Tyler O'Neill to be going into the season, at least offensively? I think so. I think that's what the hope has now become. Rather than hoping Tyler O'Neill can just become that player, you're looking at this as, okay, well, we know against right-handed hitters, Nolan Gorman is going to be hitting for us, and he's going to be hitting in that position. But on the left-handed side, Tyler O'Neill does do a lot more damage on that side of the plate than against uh, the other side of the pitchers. So we're looking at this as we have two different threats that we can go through this season with when we match up against this types of pitching. I think that's what the hope has now become because I'm a little concerned, although he's in today, that they're looking at Tyler O'Neill saying, we don't know if he's going to get back to that dual threat lefty and righties. I think we have to start looking at this differently, but it also comes into play because of who they have beyond Tyler O'Neill. So yeah, I think this is kind of a combination of a five-hole hitter for the Cardinals rather than sitting there and saying, well, we have this guy, and how do we plug this hole? It's a matter of who's on the mound for uh, against us and who's going to bat against those those uh, pitchers. I think you can get close. I don't think you can fill the void of what Tyler O'Neill was last year and what you were hoping he was going to be this year. And the reason for that is I think the power you can fill, but I'm not sure you're going to fill the average. And I, I know a lot like average isn't the end-all, be-all stat. We look at the slugging and the OPS but I do think that matters. I do think when Tyler O'Neill was right, he he was hitting. I mean, he finished last year hitting two eighty six, getting on base at a pretty good clip. I don't think you're going to get that with with a platoon and pulling Tyler O'Neill out of the lineup. Like I just don't think you can reach your ceiling. I think you can get close to it, and I think that's probably the best option that the Cardinals have right now at where things stand. Because I'm not sure Tyler O'Neill is going to find his form with only a month and a half left in the season. I think we're less than fifty days remaining in the regular season. I think you can get close, but I just don't think you can fill that void. I don't think you can fill the five-tool player that Tyler O'Neill is by putting like Nolan Gorman in that spot and hitting fifth. I think you get close to it. I just don't think you fill completely what you were hoping you were going to get from Tyler O'Neill. Tyler O'Neill this year against left-handed pitchers is batting 300 with a an OPS of 821. I, I think the reality is this. Tyler O'Neill is just probably never going to recreate what he was last year. Like I, we even said this after last season. Can you expect moving forward Tyler O'Neill to be a guy that hits 285? Probably not. But you could get in that 260, 270 range maybe. And I think that's probably around where I would hope that he finishes in the future. This year is just obviously gone in a horribly wrong direction. But it gets left-handed pitching again. Batting 300 with an OPS of 820. This year against righties. Nolan Gorman has a 250 batting average with an OPS right around 800 as well. That's an OPS plus of 122 against righties and against lefties. Tyler O'Neill's been at 131. That's on a scale of 100 with uh, 100 being league average. Anything above that is that percentage above league average. 
So between the two, you're basically 25% above league average. I would have signed up for that, I think, going into this season. If you told me, hey, you can lock it in today, Tyler O'Neill as a player offensively is going to be 25% above league average. I think I would have taken it. It's not what he was last year, but that's a really productive player at the plate. And if you just told me right now, hey, your five and six hole moving forward is going to be 20 plus percent above league average. I'd do it. I it, Wherever you need me to slam that button so I could sign up for that, I would do that today. Here's the follow-up question, though. Somebody on the text line asked this, 65780 is your comfort service text line. Guys, at what point do you have too many platoon players? Is there a point where you just need to have one guy who is producing at that level so you don't have to platoon depending on who the pitcher is? I think that's a really interesting question. I think my answer is no, because you have the sturdy players in 3-4. If you didn't have Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado, who, by the way, Bally Sports Midwest had an unbelievable graphic last night showing their slugging percentage since the All-Star break. It's like Vim and then literally everybody else in the <laughs> National League. Goldie's at like 750 in terms of his slugging percentage since the All-Star break. I think Arenado was at 650, and then the next closest guy was like 580 or something like that. But because you have those two players, I'm not super worried about it. You can work the rest around those guys. If you didn't have them, though, and I think this is where the Giants were last year, that's when I think it can get pretty dangerous when you have too many platoon players and you just you don't have those one or two guys that you pivot the rest of the lineup around. Yeah, you need your stars. Like I'm going back and looking at the the championship Dodgers team from 2020 and like they had Max Muncy, who was the first baseman, but he could move around. You had Kike Hernandez was the second baseman, but he was an outfielder. By the way, both of those at times were platoon guys. AJ Pollock was the starting outfielder, but Chris Taylor was going to be coming into games. And then you had Gavin Lux, who was available to him. So, But the reason that worked is because they had Mookie Betts. They had Cody Bellinger, who was an unreal player, and Justin Turner and Corey Seager. So like, you can't build an entire team of platoon players, but what the Cardinals have right now in terms of Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado as the two pillars, you can have platoon guys around that in terms of the Dylan Carlson's, the Tyler O'Neill's. Those are the everyday players. But if Tyler's only hitting against one side, well, guess what? You can throw in somebody in the outfield who can hit and then have the defensive replacement. That's how the Dodgers won the World Series. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's ever such a thing as too many platoons. It, I think the platoons get looked on badly when you just don't have the stars. And the Cardinals have the stars, as you're talking about, with Goldie and Arnado. And, in fact, now with the platoons, you're maximizing your lineup against right-handed pitchers and left-handed pitchers. So I don't think there's any such thing as too many platoons. I think platoons get looked in a negative way when there just isn't the guys that are the stars that kind of surround that. Like San Francisco, to your point, BK, yeah, they didn't really have that. They had aging stars that were having like career years. It was weird how they found the fountain of youth last year. And it's kind of why when they got to the playoffs, their platoons kind of failed on them. And they got knocked out by the Dodgers in, what, three or four games, I think it was, in the DS. So... I don't think there's such a thing as too many platoons. You would prefer to, in my opinion, I would prefer to have guys that could play every day against both right and left-handed pitching. But if you don't, then you just got to find that guy that can do it, and then you can just fill that void. So I don't think there's such a thing as too many platoons. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. BK, what exactly have the Cardinals done at their DH spot? I didn't even think about that. But between Pujols and Gorman and at times Donovan as well, it seems like they've been producing at a really high level. Have you looked up since the All-Star break? Holy bleep, man. (laughs) I was just looking at this. Best OPS in baseball since the All-Star break from the DH spot. So your designated hitters have combined for a batting average, not the end-all be-all, but important when it's a side, of 371 since the All-Star break. They have a slugging percentage of 671 since the All-Star break. So in terms of your OPS, your designated hitters have been the best 
by a decent margin in baseball since the break. That's an OPS of 1,100. Second is the Angels. A lot of that is Shohei Otani at over 1,000. And then third, I think this is mostly uh, Pascantino uh, for the Royals. They have an OPS of 885. <laughs> so ridiculous. it's you, the Dodgers, and then everybody else in terms of what they're getting out of their designated hitter. So to the platoon point, you have essentially created that third big bat that everybody wanted by Nolan Gorman and Albert Pujols being amazing at their sideness. And by the way, this is why Albert, sorry, I know I'm going to be the bad guy here, should not be playing more against right-handed pitching. Because what you're getting right now out of him is exactly what they need him to be. Don't ask him to do more. Don't ask him to do any less. Albert against lefties, Gorman against righties. There's your DH moving forward. Now let's go win a championship. Believe it or not, is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Look at what's happened to me. I can't believe it myself. Suddenly I'm up on top of the world. It should have been somebody else. Here we go. See it loud, be proud. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel so free. Flying away. Still going. Who could it be? Six, five, seven, eight, oh. it or not, it's me. Come on, man. Wow. Feeling it today. 65780 is the air comfort service X line. That was tough. For believe it or not, let's start with this one, guys. Believe it or not, the Jaguars are going to make it out out of the AFC South and into the AFC postseason. Well, we did say they were a seven win team. So I'm not going to believe this. That's not a playoff team, but they're going to be darn close. They're going to be darn close. Did we say Gosh, seven darn wins? It, they're going to try. Gosh dang. Did we say eight <laughs> wins? I forgot. What did we say? Uh, I've got it somewhere Is it here. seven? Eight. I think we said seven and a half, and we took the over. So eight wins. Yeah. I've got it in here somewhere. I don't know. I don't know. T-Bone's buying us beer. That's all we know. I'm so not I'm not going to believe this one. I'm not believing that. They, they're not a good football team. They're not. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, not a franchise quarterback. Doug Peterson, overrated coach. Not Playoffs is it. tough. Playoffs is tough. Playoffs um, are tough. I think that they will be a much better team this year. They're going to be fun to watch. I view the Jaguars very similarly to the way that I view the Lions. By the way, have you guys watched any of Hard Knocks yet? I've not. It's been fun. I, I, I've loved Hard Knocks. Dan Campbell seems like the perfect Hard Knocks kind of coach. You, like I, I'll watch Hard Knocks every year, but I have never fallen in love with a team from Hard Knocks like I have with Detroit. I think that's fair. I love Dan Campbell. This is the first time I've really gotten into hard knocks in quite a while. I, I think it's been a minute. I think they've improved their offensive line a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't like Jared Goff, but I think they have some weapons. I think Jared Goff is a reflection of what he has around him. Yeah. I, I if th- he's got good wide receivers, a good offensive line, a good play caller, I think Jared Goff can be adequate. I he think- can be for you what Jimmy Garoppolo was for the 49ers. I mean, we saw it with the Rams, right? But he needs a really good team around him. I think they're just an okay team. So this year, would it shock me if they won eight or nine games? No, I think that's around the range. And that's kind of where I'm at with the Jaguars of if they were in a worse division with three bad teams in it, I think they could get there. But I think the Lions, Jags, they're both going to be fun, bad teams this year where they get to like seven, eight wins. I think the Jags will be better than the Lions, but the Lions are going to be better than what they have been the last couple of years. Agree. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Believe It or Not. Guys, believe it or not, by the end of the season, 
we will be seeing more of Albert Pujols against right-handed pitchers. I think this is just to get back at me. For <laughs> Probably. I'm not going to believe this one because of what we just talked about. You have so many weapons right now against righties. Just don't know how you're going to get at bats for him because you've got two guys who should be playing at second base against lefties. You've got one of those two guys who should be playing against the DH and on top of it, Albert Pujol. So I, I'm not going to believe this one. I think it's going to be the exact same as it's always been days off against righties when they need them. And it's going to be against lefties significantly. I'm not going to believe it either. I, he may get some near the very end of the year because if they clinch a spot, then you can throw them out there against right handed pitchers, have the chase for 700. Although I'm not sure it'll be close enough to where it really matters at that point, but I'm not going to believe it. I think the only reason you would have to use him against right handed pitching is because none of the other options are hitting right handers. And that just hasn't been the case. Nolan Gorman's been crushing right-handed pitching, so you don't have to worry about it. That's the only reason. I don't remember when it was. It was early in the year at one point. I said that they should consider giving him more at-bats because he looked pretty good at the time against right-handed pitching. But that was because he didn't have anybody else that was hitting right-handed pitching. I don't think Gorman was up at that time. So I'm not going to believe this. I think you stick to your platoon. You go Gorman, DH against righties, pulls DH against lefties. Agreed. By the way, Brendan Donovan's helmet came off as he was oh. rounding second on a first to third play. What are you upset about? That's fantastic. The world is back on its, on its axis. Yeah, our so shirts, our shirts, can, axis. our shirts can, <laughs> can uh, now be made. I didn't hear access. Can he, can access. he say that? Access. A-okay. It's A-yes. Do you struggle okay. with axis the way that Tanner struggles with <laughs> no, because I can actually pronounce it. It's not a real word. You want to try man. that one more time? Fascistus. <laughs> it's getting what? worse. It what? is getting worse. How is it pronounced? You can look it up Fashistus. here. Fascistus. Did you? Would you just say it again? Did you strip the a word again? No. We can we can look it up again after the segment. Oh. Yeah. We don't need word. to. We don't need to sit here and listen to you try and butcher that word. Out of my vocabulary. We can tell. Six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service text line. Believe it or not, Alex. The Calgary Flames will be the favorite in the Western Conference going to this season based on the Nazem Kadri signing. By the way, there is a little bit of an update on this. Uh, Sean Monaghan has been officially traded to Montreal. So the Canadians add another forward to the mix. He's talented, but there have been some injuries over the last few years that have sapped some of his shot. They're hoping that they can get him to turn that around this season. They can bank on the upside there. Nazem Kadri going to Calgary. Believe it or not, Calgary Flames are now the favorite in the West. I'm not going to believe this one because uh, people are going to Colorado is going to be the favorite one. They just won the Stanley Cup and two, they have two of the best players in the game. So they're going to be the favorites. But I would almost guarantee that right beneath Colorado going into this season, Calgary Flames will be there in terms of odds for a Stanley Cup from the Western Conference. And I, I don't think it's going to be very close off between those two teams when it comes to odds for the Stanley Cup. Yeah, I'm not going to believe this either. I agree with Alex. I think Colorado, one, coming off the Stanley Cup is always going to give them a boost in their odds. And then also, two, when you have two MVP, legitimate MVP caliber players in Kale McCarr and Nathan McKinnon, that's also going to help you. So I'm not going to believe this. I think Colorado will still be viewed as the favorite in the betting world. Agreed. We're all on the same page here. 65780 is the error comfort service text line. Guys, believe it or not, Missouri wins at least seven games in football this year. Tanner, you are opting out of this. You cannot talk about my Missouri Tigers. Yeah, because nah, your team's You worse. always think that they win three games. I'm going yes. 11, baby. Okay. <laughs> the one loss who? Georgia or Louisiana Tech? Nah, they'll beat Georgia this year in his do eyes. They, do they play Liberty? No. No. Okay. No. So then they'll win that game. They're going to lose Louisiana Seven? Tech. The reason I know is because BK's going. I'm going to bet. I'm going to believe this one. I'm believing this one. I think they can. I think they're a seven win team. I am going to believe it as well. 
Louisiana Tech's a win. Abilene Christian is a win. I think they could beat one of Florida or Auburn on the road. Vandy is a win. South Carolina is going to be the toss-up game. I think they can beat Kentucky at home this year. New Mexico State's a win. And boom, you're at seven wins. Here's the way you get it. I think that's fair. I think they can beat all. Who was the other road game you said? Oh, Florida. Florida or Auburn. I think they I think can they win one Auburn. of those two games. I think, uh, when's the Auburn game? Early in the season. I think it's week five, okay, if so I'm not mistaken. still have their coach. I was going to say, if it's late in the year, they won't have him. Yeah, it's week four, September 24th. So we are You're being facetious. five weeks five weeks away from it. Am I going to? I have no idea. <laughs> 65780 <laughs> is the error comfort service text line for Believe It or Not. Guys, believe it or not, at least one of Paul DeYoung or Tyler O'Neill will not be starting in game one of the playoffs if the Cardinals are going up against a right-handed pitcher. That's an interesting one. Paul DeYoung or Tyler O'Neill, one of those two not in the lineup in the I'll, first game of the playoffs based against, uh, against a right-handed pitcher. I'll believe it because I think the way that Brendan Donovan's at-bats have been, he's going to be starting in one, in, in one of second base or left field if those guys aren't hitting because Nolan Gorman, I think will be your DH in that situation. I'm not going to believe this by the way, bro. Neal six sellies with the boys. RBI just whacking that ball. Just, whack, just waiting for his opportunity to whack. Uh, I'm not going to believe this. I think O'Neill will be in left field. I think they're still going to try and get him right against right-handed pitching. Same with, I think D young, you stay with him at shortstop because he's the best defensive option there. I agree with Alex. I think the way Donovan's playing, you get his bat in the lineup, and I think the way you do it is you start him at second base, Gorman's your DH, and you don't have Tommy Edmond in the lineup. I think that's the way they'll do it. As of right now, where things stand today, so I'll be- I'm not going to believe this. I'm not either. I think these guys are all going to end up starting. I think that they know that they need their defense in the lineup, and that's the way that they're going to play it. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're going to dive into the junk drawer, but next, Michael Gersh was on a great podcast yesterday with Derek Gould, the best podcast in baseball. There were two things that he said on that podcast that I think really stood out to us. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. One of my must listens on a day-to-day basis, really week to week, whenever they put them out, is the best podcast in baseball. It's hosted by Derek Gould. You can find it at stltoday.com. And this week, his guest was Michael Gersh. And when the Cardinals general manager goes on a podcast, that's something that I find to be a must listen. And I want to give all the credit to the best podcast in baseball for the audio that we're going to play in this segment. But Alex, I thought he had some interesting comments in his talk with Derek Gould about the way that the Cardinals went about their trade deadline, uh, how the Cardinals approach the playoffs, what the offseason looks like, and then how that relates to what the Cardinals have had to do over the last couple of years at the deadline. It's all well worth your time. And then he also went into how he got into baseball, which is a, a really compelling conversation, in my opinion. But there were a few things in particular that I wanted to take from it. And the number one takeaway that I had is how the Cardinals are now viewing the playoffs with this revamped system. You now have the two quote unquote buys, if you want to call it that. And then you've got the three wild cards and the last division winner, the worst one in terms of their record, will be playing in that wild card round. That changes the way that teams are going to approach things going into the playoffs. What does it mean for the Cardinals? How do they approach this version of the playoffs? Here's Michael Gersh on the best podcast in baseball. It is not a crapshoot. I I don't think anyone pretends that 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 the last team to qualify and the team who gets the first round by are equally likely to you know reach or win the World Series. That that's it's not a true crapshoot or you know a, a purely a roll of the dice. But 
there's a lot of uncertainty and being in a position to be in the playoffs as often as possible with as good a team as we can that keeps that that long-term goal of always being a competitive team and, and always competing for the division puts us on, we think, in our best spot to, to bring home as many titles as we can. So what do you make of that, Alex? What do you make of that comment from Michael Gersh? That they, I kind of make it the way that we talked about it earlier, that they view that this format of the playoffs makes it a little bit more of a level playing field and that depth becomes the most important thing. And that's the, the area that the Cardinals really focused in on at the trade deadline, making sure that they went for depth, making sure that they had the pitching that goes into it, whether it be bullpen or starting rotation. And on top of it, feeling like their bench can be an asset in the playoffs. I, at least hearing that, it makes me believe that he views it as a lot more of a level playing field than what it's been in the past, where if you're the best team like the Dodgers in the regular season, more times than not, you're going to be walking away in the World Series, maybe winning the World Series. Yeah, I, I view it as I found it interesting because normally we hear the front office say, you know, just get in and anything can happen. And then that kind of wasn't the comment there. That was essentially, yeah, you can get in, but it's it's very unlikely that you're going to have that shot to actually go and run. It's not often, it's not just a crapshoot where anybody that's in the playoffs can go win a World Series. To me, he was basically saying, hey, usually our top-end teams are going to go on a run. I know last year the Braves weren't that team, but that was one of those crapshoot moments. To me, he was... And admitting, also, they were that team down the stretch. Yeah. They were they very were good. Straight the straight deadline on. Yeah. I, I found it interesting because I thought he was basically saying, hey, look, we can't really continue to go by that model of, hey, if we just get in, anything can happen. We actually have to build ourselves up to give ourselves a fighting chance, kind of like the Braves did last year, where what you're saying is they weren't viewed as that best team going into the playoffs, but the way they were playing, they should have been viewed that way. And that's the way I took that cut from Michael Gersh on the best podcast in baseball as, okay, it's no longer just, okay, how do we just get in and hope something good happens? It's now, okay, yes, getting in is the first step, but you have to make sure you get in. You have to make sure that you've built depth and built a quality quality team around you because you're not going to get as lucky maybe as maybe it once was to where you can just kind of find your way to the World Series. You have to build a solid team to get to the World Series. I think baseball is now almost broken down into three separate seasons. You have the first quote-unquote season or first segment of the year where it's like opening day up until the trade deadline. And you have to build your team to at least keep you in it for that stretch of time. You've got to be a you've got to be in contention once you get to the trade deadline. And then by then you should know here's what we have, here's what we need. And you go out there and accumulate that talent at the deadline to be able to fill those holes, plug those holes. And of course everybody deals with some injuries and the hope is you're going to get some of those guys back for the stretch run. The second segment of the season is this stretch run, what we're in right now, from essentially August 1st until the end of the year. That two-month stretch, teams play differently, and this is when the Braves last year became a contender. Hell, it's when the Cardinals last year became a contender. They weren't a real threat from the beginning of the season up until July. They were too up and down throughout that time, and then suddenly they turned it on in the last two months of the season. And that's what the Braves did last year. We're watching the Dodgers. They they have almost become a like complete wrecking crew over the course of the last month or so. They are that team right now. And then some teams will go in the opposite direction where they were great all year. And then the Yankees kind of fit into this category. The Brewers might be fitting into this category. They just falter down the stretch and they go into the playoffs with no real momentum. And I do think that matters if it's a two month stretch as opposed to like the last week they stunk. That's not real. And then there's the third season, the third segment of the season, and that's when the playoffs begin. And I think that you can do things in the offseason for the first stretch and then at the deadline for that second stretch that puts you in position to be able to take advantage of the way that the playoffs are formatted. And I think that the new format, A, with a schedule where you have fewer off days, and B, 
with it being a three-game series for the wild card game at, or wild card round, rather, as opposed to just the one game, winner take all, you're moving on. I think that plays into the way that the Cardinals look at it. The other thing, and why I think that the playoffs are less of a crapshoot for the Cardinals now than they have been in the past, three games at home really matters for this team, man. The way that they play at their ballpark, they have constructed this team specifically to be good at Bush Stadium. And there are other teams that come in here. Bush Stadium this year has been a real advantage for the Cardinals. They are 39 and 21 at home this year. If they win today, they're going to be 40 and 21. To give you some context on what that means, the Mets this year at home are 40 and 19. Basically the same as what you are. The Braves at home, 39 and 23. Worse than what you are. The Dodgers at home, 40 and 15. Slightly better than what you are. You are in contention with those other teams when you play at Bush Stadium. The problem for the Cardinals has been when they go on the road where they are slightly below 500 on the season. This team has constructed itself to be awesome at Bush. When you get to host three games at home in that play wild card round because you won your division, that's why I think that they are now saying, you know what? We have changed our aspirations from just get into win the division. That is the new goal for this team on a year to year basis. Now, it still means 90 to 95 wins, but it does change slightly what that target is going into the season. And I think it also has to change the mindset in terms of going into the season and how important the regular season is. Because if you want a shot at a World Series and you're constructing your team to be really good at Bush, win the division's good, but and it's going to be difficult because the Dodgers just seem invincible. But you need to start building yourself up to be one of the best teams in the National League. Because if home is this important to you and you're building pitching staffs to be focused on being better at Bush Stadium and how your team plays, there's going to be more onus on the regular season than just saying, well, we just want to get into the playoffs. But once you get into the playoffs, it's 50-50 until you get to that game seven or that game five in the in the DS. Like You get two home, two road. If you can split that one game, you get lucky on the road one time, now you're moving on to the next round of the playoffs. So that home field advantage being as significant as it is for the Cardinals, I, I think that's what they're trying to build upon. Is, is what they're able to do at Bush. There was one other thing that I wanted to get to from Gersh's conversation with Derek Gould. We've talked a lot about how the Cardinals need to learn from their mistakes over the last couple of years. And instead of getting to the deadline and saying, you know what, we are desperate for starting pitching, find that in the offseason. Find that depth once you get into free agency or via trades, whatever it might end up being. Well, here's Michael Gersh talking about how difficult that can be for a team like the Cardinals. Ideally, we, we would always have like redundancies and extra depth in the pitching staff because we know that there's going to be underperformance, there's going to be injuries, things are going to happen. The challenge is signing players to be that depth is very difficult. A guy like Quintana this offseason was looking to reestablish himself as a starter. If his choice is to sign as the eighth starter for the Cardinals because we want depth or the third or fourth starter on Pittsburgh or whichever other team offered him options – because they have opportunity for him. Even if you offer more money, a, a lot of guys are looking for opportunities to reestablish himself. And they, they, they're more worried about their next contract than they are this, this, kind of this one-year contract this year. Ideally, we'd avoid it, right? Ideally, we stay healthy in the rotation and don't have to worry about it next July. But realistically, I expect it's kind of part of being a competitive team that you, you spend your trade at the trade deadline you're spending assets to acquire more pitching disclaimer that was like a three-minute answer and i cut out some of the middle of it he talked about relievers as well and how contenders like all of them are going to be looking for some kind of pitching 
at the trade deadline. So it's not just specifically focused on starting pitcher there, uh, what he said at the end of that cut. But I do think it's instructive of it can be really hard for a Jose Quintana for him to sign with you as opposed to the Pirates because you can't guarantee him a spot in your rotation. And so what they did instead was, Drew Verhagen, you're our pitching depth that we're going to acquire in the offseason. Aaron Brooks, you're our pitching depth that we will acquire in the offseason. And our big guy that we're going to sign is Steven Matz, and that just hasn't worked. None of those three signings at this point in time have worked because of injury and because of the ineffectiveness for a couple of them. What I think that the Cardinals need to do going into next offseason, because you're going to have Michaelis, Flaherty, Hudson, Montgomery, Polante, Liberator, McGreevy, Graceffo, uh, like those are guys that could factor into your rotation at some point. And then, of course, Wayno, if he decides to come back as well at some point next year, that's a lot of guys. If they're going to acquire pitching depth, it's got to be via trade. That's the way that they can go about it in the offseason as opposed to in season, because the prices on trades are lower in the offseason as opposed to when you're at the deadline and there's a bunch of teams that are potentially bidding for that guy's services and all of them want that guy for the same reason for that pennant race. So I, I think that's the lesson to be learned. Okay, sure. You can't go to the market to find that guy. You can still trade for him and then they're going to be in your organization and you can figure out what to do for, with them from there. Look at the recent examples of Cardinals signing free agent pitchers compared to trading for pitchers at the deadline. And too. they have had way more success with the exception of Miles Michaelis. But that was a guy that they found in the Korean League rather than going into the free agent market. But the Mike Leakes, I, I mean, I know he was also in the Korean League, but the KKs, you've spent money on pitchers that have not helped, whereas at the trade deadline last season it was John Lester and Jay Happ who turned things around. This season it's Montgomery and Quintana. I would much rather this team to to change their mindset and keep it this direction where we're not going to go throw money at starting pitchers in the offseason. We're going to wait and see what our internal depth has, and then come trade deadline time, we're going to go get a guy who's got some control who can be a part of us moving forward. And that's that's kind of where I am. I don't think they're ever, excuse me, I don't know if they're, it's emotional, man. I don't know if they're ever going to have a point where they're going to feel really comfortable near the deadline to where they don't add starting pitching. Like, I I think you have to rely on the internal options and hope that those guys take that step. And then you don't have, even then, you probably still have to go get pitching. Like, I think this year, if Libertor is fine and Brooks has that depth sign that ends up working out, you probably are going to still go get one starter, and it's probably the Quintana of the world, and it's not going to be Jordan Montgomery. Like I don't think there's any way that they can plan not to go add starting pitching at the trade deadline because I think you're always going to need pitching because someone's going to break down, and you just can't plan for that, even if you do sign depth pieces. I, I don't think depth pieces fill in the void of what you originally picture your starting five to be, so you go get that fifth starter at the trade deadline. Like I, I think his point was interesting of, you know, we're always probably going to have to add starting pitching. Like Even the best teams, when their rotation is good, like look at the New York Yankees, for example. Had they kept Jordan Montgomery, their rotation was still very solid. They acquired Frankie Montas, but then they ultimately decided, okay, we need center field help so bad we have to move Jordan Montgomery. Like I, If they don't need center field help, Jordan Montgomery is still a Yankee in my opinion. And you're looking at a team that had a great rotation, and yet they still added to it. Like Pitching is always going to be on the, front bar, bat, or on, on the front burner for teams when it comes to the deadline. Planning for it in the offseason, I think it's an interesting point of it's just hard to bring guys in and sign them for depth. Trades, I understand, but it's hard to find those guys because of what you have on your roster. Like For example, if they go, Carlos go and acquire Pablo Lopez, like that's, that's great. Like Now I feel comfortable with your starting five. But then you're probably not bringing back Adam Wainwright because who's ultimately going to become your depth starter? I don't know if you could name a guy that's going to be to the be depth honest starter. With you, I don't want Pablo Lopez after what I've seen this season from Quintana and Montgomery. What do you mean? Like why? Like next season? I, I mean, I feel like I'm in good shape with my pitching staff at this point to give up the assets for Pablo Lopez. 
So you feel good about Michaelis, Flaherty, Hudson, Montgomery, and Wayno? Is that like as your five? And my kind of assumption is if you could bring back Quintana also. I would rather bring, like, I, I love what they've gotten out of Quintana. I would not bet that that will sustain next year as well. Because we've seen ups and downs from him. I would rather bet on a guy like Lopez. And that's just one name. Like, there's going to be others that become available in the offseason as well in this conversation. I would rather bet on those guys being able to be a stud as the front-end starter as opposed to betting on year two of Quintana. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, who is the Cardinals' most indispensable under-the-radar player? So we're not talking Goldie, Arenado, Michaelis, Wayno. Those are the top four for you this year. We all understand none of them are under-the-radar. Who else would you throw into that mix, though, that's been the most valuable in terms of the under-the-radar performers? We'll get into that at 1 o'clock. The Junk Drawer is coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve a checking account today. Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex, I normally ask you a question about my junk drawer stories, but I don't feel comfortable asking you or Tanner a question that would lead into this particular story. It's always a good start. Okay. A man and a woman were arrested at Cedar Point after four witnesses told police they saw the couple engaged in sexual intercourse on one of the amusement park's rides on Sunday. Hey, yo. What kind of ride? David Davis well, and David he- Davis and Heather Johnston, okay, both well. of whom are 32 years old, right around Alex's age, a little younger than him, were allegedly having intercourse while aboard the giant wheel according to a report so ferris wheel okay the two were confronted by the cedar point uh sergeant and security before the police department was ultimately called the group of witnesses include two juveniles who were in the cart below the couple on the ferris wheel witnesses told police that they could quote feel the cart shaking They saw the man and women both expose themselves on the ride. The couple initially denied the accusations, according to the report. How can you deny those accusations? (laughs) Fair question. Johnston, the the woman, told officers that she had her shorts under her dress, dropped a cigarette, and then when she went over to pick them up, Davis helped her to pick up the cigarettes. A couple later admitted appreciate they were being, indeed engaged in the actions. Appreciate her being honest with what they were doing. First of all, I'm terrified of heights. Second of all, imagine a worse place to engage in these kinds of acts than at Cedar Point, which is a very, very busy amusement park on the Ferris wheel, man. Is there anywhere worse in the world that I could, like, my card is, this is the worst possible case. To have intercourse? Worst. Oh, I could think of it. So many different places. There is no worse place. Uh, Porta potty? Uh This is the second worst public place. Public place. (laughs) If you didn't, I'm not going to comment. I mean, I could come up with a lot of different places that are just worse. Porta potty is definitely up there. It is, but at least Public then you're secluded. Room. 
This, Are you though? <laughs> more so than this, man. You've got a door that closes behind you. And yeah, this, but if you're it in is a fair, open, it is an open air environment. I understand that, but look, and I'm not justifying this because this is disgusting. But if you're in a Ferris wheel and it's moving, top, nobody's really seeing. Yeah, you. you can't see because there's one person below, above, and below you. Correct. If you're up at the top, it would like. For, in, for, no, see, I'm thinking if, of the wheel at. Uh, Six Flags. Uh, no, well, no, I'm thinking of the one here in oh, St. Louis. Oh, okay. Uh, the only time you're being seen Union is when you're, oh, it was yeah. when you're entering the Ferris wheel, like at the lower level. Yeah. But as soon as you go up, until you get about that, nobody of the sees way up, you. Yeah. They you hear you. Anybody. That's the dumbest thing possible. They hear you, but they don't see you until you come back down. Poor choice of words. Until the wheel rotates back down, and then people see what you're doing. Yeah. Apparently, there were four plus people that saw this. Were these people psychotic enough to do it with somebody on the Ferris wheel ride with them? Uh, No, but apparently they could be seen below and above. Like, think about this. Well, that's what. Yeah, you obviously. But that seems important. (laughs) Understandable. But the porta potty is, I think, a lot worse. Not that I agree. I can't. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Someone said, how about on it's a small world ride? Yeah, that'd be from the, the right 314. BK, man, these things happen. It's natural. What? Don't be judgmental. Is this isn't a rain shower. Yeah. <laughs> natural. What do you mean it's natural? There's nothing about that natural. This is 100% not, not natural at all in any way, shape, or form. And doing the dirty while you're at a doing the dirty amusement park, honestly, in any scenario feels like a bad way to go about it. Someone texted in and said they have to admit being a college student, they also took enactment in this situation. Sexual relations. On the Ferris Wheel of Six Flags. And they said you'd be surprised at how many people do this. Sir or madam, I do believe I would be surprised at how many people do this. I think I would be too. Because I thought that number was zero. Yeah, I, at no prior moment prior to the story, I would have assumed that at no moment <laughs> yeah, can I can I sit here and think, you know what? The mood is just right, and I'd like to do this on a Ferris wheel. Absolutely not. I'm out. I already I'm, the, I'm out. So there are two things that I am unwhelling to do at amusement parks. Well, is this pa- one of them? Three. <laughs> the Habsax is one. Smart. <laughs> and the other Number two, one. go on the Ferris wheel or go on anything spinny. I'm out. I'm out on all of the above. Do you like roller coasters? Love roller coasters. For Wait, no, did you just uh, say you're afraid of heights? No, I'm I the am. same way. I will not do Ferris wheels. The, the I will not do spinning things. You go quick. It's, yeah. a, See, it's I, a quick thing. I don't Ferris like the Ferris wheel, wheel when you go up. At times, when they're getting more people onto the Ferris wheel, you are sitting up there at the oh, top yeah. and you're rocking back and oh, forth. Yeah. See, no, I'm the opposite. Rocking and rolling, I, and I don't need that. So I, are these people. <laughs> I hate heights. Wow. They were rocking and rolling too. I hate heights, but I can't do roller coasters. I can do the Ferris wheel. No, I can't do Ferris wheels. I hate Ferris wheels, and I I, I can't get on them because I, I get I get a, I have a panic attack. I'm thinking about it right now, and I'm starting to get a panic attack. And I can't do spinning things because I will vomit everywhere afterwards. But I can do roller coasters. Man, I am. There are a lot of people texting. By the number of people on our text line that are essentially saying, "Yeah, this is old hat. Been there, done that." Someone said, "With how many kids what? Alex has had, he I'd figured he'd do it anywhere." That's False. Three one four. False. And I only have two kids <laughs> that you know of coming up in 10 minutes. Whoa. Some NFL quick hitters. But next, who's the Cardinals Whoa. most indispensable player not named? Michaelis, Wayno, Arenado, Goldie. We'll get into that next year on 101 ESPN. You know, I'm just trying to be ready for a good one to whack. We're right.
right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I mean, we did a whole segment on it. I don't know why not. All right, I'll ask for forgiveness later. 65780 yeah. is the Air Comfort Service X line. Somebody said, I have done that once coming down in the St. Louis Arch Pods. I was 19 years old. Sir, madam, whoever you are, that is more impressive than Adam Wainwright in his next three starts throwing perfect games. No. I, I've never heard of a more impressive accomplishment in my entire life. I, it's disgusting, but I've never been more impressed oh, by it. Oh, it's anything. really disgusting, but no way. I think it could get broken down. You'd be stuck in it for 45 minutes. Yeah, it's not about that. It's about the size and like the movement. It's always <laughs> it's a lot okay. Moving on. Most indispensable player, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you know, I didn't think we'd be talking about this on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> You just never know. Sometimes never it's a grab know, bag. Wait, what? All right. So we'll get into some NFL quick hitters in about 10 minutes or so. You're going to have right to ask forgiveness for that. Who is the most indispensable under-the-radar Cardinals player this season? So the Athletic went through, and they put down their list of every single team who their under-the-radar indispensable player is. Now, when mm. I'm thinking of this, Alex, I, I should actually add one more player to my list, but I thought there were four that were obvious. They're they're not under-the-radar. Mike List, Wayno, Goldie, Arenado. Two of those guys are MVP candidates. The other two have been the stalwarts of your rotation from start to finish. I'm gonna add, I'm gonna throw Ryan Helsley into this mix as well. I don't know where this team would be without having one of. You can't be under the radar if you're one of the best closers in the game. <laughs> exactly. So those are your five. Keep them off your list. But other than those five, the rest of the roster is at your disposal for under the radar <laughs> MVPs. So Jim Bowden for the Cardinals went with Tommy Edmond. Here's what he wrote. Edmund won the gold glove for second baseman in the National League last year and started the season playing that same type of defense at the position this year. He was asked to play shortstop for a period of time and was arguably above average there as well. Although he's had some slumps at the plate, he's still third on the team with 110 hits. He's racked up 30 extra base hits this year, and he's stolen 24 bags. His versatility to play both middle infield spots and his hard-nosed approach to the game sometimes goes unnoticed due to the fact that he's playing with two legitimate MVP candidates and Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado, end quote. I think Tommy Edmond would have been on my list last year. I don't think that he's on my list this year. Well, last year, he went two for three against Clayton Kershaw, so... I think my answer to this would actually be Andre Pallante. He would be my under-the-radar MVP for this season. And the reason why is because every time there's a new hole that needs to be plugged for the Cardinals, he's the guy that does it. Don't answer that. You need a bullpen arm early in the season? He's got that. You need your rotations crumbling. You've got nobody that's available to you that can consistently give you starts, not named Michaelis or Wayno. He's going to be the guy that fills into that spot on the in the rotation, and he did an admirable job of it. Now you get to the back end of the season. You've got an innings limit. You have filled that spot in the rotation. Your bullpen showing signs of cracks. Guess what? He he's can fill be, it. He's going to be the one that fills that as well. Now he's potentially going to be your seventh inning reliever filling into that spot for Hennessy's Cabrera as Cabrera is going through some of these struggles. I think my answer would be Andre Pallante. Who would your guy be? I hear what you're saying, BK, but you're wrong there. Okay. No, it's a good choice. But I think they're going to have a lot of those guys available to him, depending on what their rotation looks like and health of the pitchers. My guy's Brendan Donovan. Because Tommy Edmond is a good choice there, but I don't think he's under the radar. Brendan Donovan is under the radar. Brendan Donovan is a guy that nobody expected to be a part of this roster this season other than Tanner Hendrickson. And Brendan Donovan 
what the last two weeks has like one of the best on base percentages on the team. Brendan Donovan is a guy that I think we could be looking at come playoff time and sit there and say he has to be in your batting order. And he could be batting leadoff or two for you in front of Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado. I think he is going to be an under-the-radar type of player going into the postseason. And I think this could be a guy that could create a lot of run support for the Cardinals. Yeah, I, I like both of those. I think Palante was number one for me just because he's kind of the Swiss Army knife. And if you don't have him... It goes back to what we were just talking about a couple of segments ago about the depth, the depth of your starting rotation. Because without him, I mean, who's filling in that spot when you're looking at that stretch in which they were without both Matts and Flaherty? You had Hudson, really only had two stabilizers in Wainwright and uh, Michaelis. I mean, they turned to Libertor. Libertor wasn't very good. They tried to get away from him, and they turned back to Palante. So I think he's the most underrated player. I really like the Brendan Downing one because I think he's above Tommy Edmond because he plays every position. We've seen him play just about every position. Good leadoff man gets on base, which is kind of the knock against Tom Yedman, who plays good defense, but he doesn't get on base. And another one that I saw the text line bring up, and it's kind of weird to think of him as an underrated player, but I think Yadier Molina does fall into that category. I mean, you notice the difference right away when he came back well, from his uh, knee injury of how well he handles the pitching staff. And that's not to say Kisner and Herrera weren't handling the pitching staff well, but the framing is just such a difference maker. And there's kind of this calming presence with having Yadier Molina in the dugout so I think those are probably the three guys that I would look at as underrated and then I might or and then I might put Tommy Edmond fourth but even then I still struggle to put Edmond fourth just because I think it's been kind of a I don't want to call it a disappointing season but it's been kind of a letdown season in my mind he started off really well thought he was taking that step from last year where I, I thought that's what he was 250 hitter didn't get on base at a good clip was a leadoff hitter and then he filled in a shortstop, did an admirable job, and then his bat has just gone completely cold, and he's fallen back to what he was last year. So I don't think it's a bad season from Tommy Evan, but I think it's a little bit disappointing because he didn't take the next step like I thought he would. On Brendan Donovan, Tom Orff tweeted this out. He's a, He's got a bunch of stats that he posts on Twitter. He's a really good follow if you're a Cardinals or a Mizzou fan. He said, Brendan Donovan has started 70 games this year. He has not started more than 14, though, at any individual position. He started five games at first, 14 at second, 13 at third, shortstop six times, left field 14 times, right field 13 times, and five times he has been a DH starter for you. That's remarkable. To the point on the the Swiss Army knife, Brendan Donovan has been kind of that. It's it's almost the pitching versus the hitting side of things. Like, which one do you value more? Brendan Donovan has basically been your Andre Pallante for the offense this year. Here's another one that I would be interested in throwing out there for you guys. I think there's almost two ways of looking at this. Looking at past performance versus future expectations. Uh, yeah, I know where you're going, and I, I was just thinking this too. Would you consider Lars Newbar to be up there? Oh, no, I don't know list? where you're going. Lars Newbar at this point is established as you're starting right fielder. He's starting against righties and lefties in a weird way. He now has become more platoon proof than Tyler O'Neill has. Um, is Lars Newbar one of the under the radar indispensable players? Like if he, if he went through a massive slump and was no longer a legitimate starting caliber outfielder for you and right. And by the way, he plays really good defense out there as well. I think that would be a real problem for the Cardinals right now because he's also solved your leadoff problems with a high on base percentage. He's hitting the ball hard, hits for power and average. I think Lars Newpar is up there on this list. I would still have Plante above him, but he's up there. He has to be on this list because the way I look at the under the radar players is like you name the Cardinals in the playoffs and you start listing off the players that are going to be impactful and how far down do you get? You got to go a little further down to get to Lars Newpar before you sit there and say, yeah, I believe he's on this list. So I think he, think he has to be. The one that I thought you were going with was Albert Pujols. Oh, that's a good and one, And I saw too. 618 text that one in. I mean, against a lefty, Albert Pujols could be batting fifth for you. And it I mean, is. yeah, 
I mean, and, and you're talking about a guy who could be the guy who significantly is scoring runs for you. So uh, from the 618, I think Albert Pujols is an awesome answer with that. I do, too, because you can't replace. There's nobody else that has that kind of production no. except for Paul Goldschmidt against and fear factor. Yeah. And the fear factor. The Newport one is interesting because when we talk about indispensable Cardinal, I, I, I can throw him on the list. I don't know if he'd be like top three for me just because I think if if you didn't have Newport, I think you could get away with Dickerson in right field with his bat. His defense, definitely not. But his bat, I think you get away with right now because he's been swinging the bat better. And against a left-hander, you could throw Donovan, who we've said in this conversation, into right field as we've seen a couple of times this year as well. That's why I just don't – I think it's a good answer. I think Newport is definitely a – on the list of indispensable Cardinals, but I don't think he cracks the top three because I can I can point out his replacement if you didn't have Lars Newport on the roster. And the other part of it, too, is if, for, let's say, Newport wasn't there, the other thing I could say is I could turn to Alec Burleson, who we haven't seen all year, and I could but play him in right field. they don't trust him in right field. They don't trust him defensively. Yeah, and you don't, don't know trust if he's going to be on the roster. They don't trust him at all. They don't trust Yepes at all. But I'm just saying, like, I can at least point to how would I replace, if Newport wasn't there, how would I replace him? I can name a couple of options, but, like, I don't think the Cardinals have a Swiss Army knife like Andre Pallante that can start and be in the bullpen in high leverage. And the same with Brendan Donovan where it's – But if you don't we're have projecting a guy that does forward, you don't need Pallante in your rotation anymore. So the only th- – the place that he would be going is late innings, and I could make the same argument just for what it's worth, just to play but devil's was, advocate. If there's an injury, if there's an injury, Pallante's that guy. If there's an injury, Pallante's probably the guy that slides back into the rotation. I don't think so. I, I think Flaherty they would stick Mads. with Hudson, and then you would have... I mean, we're two weeks now away, less than two weeks away from Jack Flaherty's return yeah, I don't well. believe Pallante goes into the rotation again for you. I think they're at their limit. Yeah. But I think, I, okay, that's and fair. I think but if I'm projecting forward, I think he's a guy that's a starting option next year. He's an agreed. option. Agreed. And no, that's why I'm he's on about the list. the rest of this year. That, that's fair, though. I mean, I, I said Pallante would be my answer, so I'm, I'm totally with you, but... Just to, to be the devil's advocate here. Playing devil's advocate against yourself for come on for sure. But Lars Newbar also like it's not just the right field stuff. It's the defense that he has out there, and also the the leadoff option. If he were to get hurt, I mean it's Brendan Donovan, and then who's batting second for you against righties? I guess Gorman. Gorman. But now your lineup is really thin. Once you get to that five hole in your lineup, you're talking. I mean Tyler O'Neill needs to get it figured out against right-handed pitching, and then it gets it really starts to drop off from there. But I, I think it's pretty cool that. The guys that we're talking about, all of them not named Albert, are rookies. Mm-hmm. Like, you've got Lars Newpar, who is very early in his career. Brendan Donovan is in his first year in the big leagues. Nolan Gorman, I think you could throw on to this list as well for the same reasons that we oh, talked about to. with um, Albert Pujols. And then Palante is in his first year, and I think he's just starting to kind of get it figured out when it comes to his preparation as well. He talked about that a little bit last night after the game. This team's in a good spot for this year and for years to come because of some of the contributions they're getting from young, cheap, cost-controlled players. And just think back to when we did our top 20 most important Cardinals back in spring training. I mean, I don't have the list in front of me, but I can imagine if we went through that list now, there are plenty of guys that did not reach oh, yeah. expectations of what we were thinking. I know Flaherty was up there, and Flaherty's barely pitched this I guarantee season, there's so. five names on those lists that – or there's five names on the that aren't on that list that are a part of this team right now. And I know you, one's in Philadelphia. Let's go through this real quick. Jack Flaherty was number one. Okay. And Makes Plante, sense. Plante didn't fill his role, but he helped you survive that. Arenado, two. O'Neill, three. Goldie, four. Carlson <laughs> was five. And then you've got Wayno, Matz, Harrison Bader, who's no longer on the roster. Yeah, but you got Jordan Montgomery, so that works. Tommy Edmond, Giovanni Gallegos, Miles Michaelis, Dakota Hudson, Hennessy <laughs> Cabrera, Yadier Molina, Paul DeYoung, Edmundo Sosa, Alex Reyes, neither of which are currently on the roster, and Alex Reyes never impacted the roster in any significant well, way. He impacted it. Yepes, Gordon, and Jordan Hicks. 
Most that's what ten guys that Would either you say didn't Gordon? reach Gorman. Gorman. Like, who the hell's Gordon? Gorman. I was gonna say ten of what ten of those guys on that list. Yeah. Didn't reach what your expectation was, or five of them weren't even weren't a part even of the it. roster right now, and their production was replaced by the guys that we were just mentioning. And if you don't have that, my gosh, Rough sounds season. like a World Series team coming up in 15 minutes. Are the Cardinals set up well for playoff success given their pitching and what is happening right now to other National League contenders' pitching staffs? We'll talk about that coming up at 1:30. But next, some NFL quick hitters, including the Deshaun Watson suspension, has officially come down. What do we think of it, and what do we think about his handling of it now? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And Kylie, let's dive into some NFL quick hitters, including the big news of the day. The suspension is in. It is official. This one is going to stick. Deshaun Watson is going to be out for the first 11 games of the NFL season. He has been suspended for 11 games. He will also have a fine of $5 million that will go directly to charity. Um, He has since spoken to the media. He basically said, hey, I'm sorry if I triggered anybody, but I am completely innocent of all wrongdoing. His agent tweeted out, quote, to be clear, Judge Robinson, who saw the appeal in this case, repeated the NFL's narrative. She received a brief from the NFL weeks before we had the opportunity to talk to her. In our first call with the judge, she referred to, quote, Deshaun's pattern of behavior, end quote. Her mind was already made up before we even presented a counter. Let's start here. 11 games does feel a little bit light to me. You can disagree with that. That's fine. No problem. But in my mind, 11 games is light. I also think that the 11 games was handed down because in order for Deshaun Watson to accrue a full season this year for the Browns, he must play or he must be at least active for six games. And the 11 game suspension allows for that to take place. Should the appeal judge have taken that into account? Yes. No. Somewhere in between. Maybe. But that's, I think, why he ended up getting the 11 games. That's why it was settled this way with Deshaun Watson. He had to agree to this. And I think all of this just makes it even more gross in my mind. Like the way that they've handled this, Deshaun Watson's side, since the announcement was made. Yeah, they're doing what's best for him. It's gross, dude. This is gross. So let me ask you this. If they were to do the full season and that impacted the franchise tag, does that hurt or help his career? It just pushes his contract back a year. So next year he would so make $1 million. Getting, so he's still getting that money regardless, but you're pushing it later. Into his, but I feel like that he does not accrue a full season this year. I, I just, I feel like the, the, the penalty for this should be whatever is hurting his career most because he shouldn't be able to sit here and be the star of the Cleveland Browns at some point. And if you're pushing it back a full season, well, that's another year under his belt where he's not playing. I, I think that this was Deshaun saying, I want the $46 million salary next year. Like This was a settlement. I'm with you, but this was a settlement. So right. both sides have to agree to it. And in this scenario, I think that what he was willing to give up the extra games in order yeah. to get his full money next year. I just, this year, he has a $1 million base salary and got a big signing bonus because he knew he was going to be suspended. So he put it that way for a reason. And now he knows, okay, I'll miss out on the whatever, $700,000 this year on my base salary. 
and next year I'll get my full allotment of salary. So I'll go ahead and accept the 11 games, even though he believes he should have gotten zero games, yeah. which Look, is nonsense. I mean, like it or not, I feel like the guy should be suspended indefinitely for what he just did. And beyond that, I think what they should have done to hurt him more was if you're going to suspend him for the 11 and get 11 games, suspend him for the 11 games. But also when he comes back, you're not playing in the playoffs. That, that is what I think because should have happened Did they here. do that? They didn't do that to Tom Brady. No. So the, the way that this would work, it's I, I can't imagine. I don't think it's ever been done in the NFL. And so that's there is no precedent for it. So this would definitely go to court. But with Major League Baseball, if you if you are suspended for PEDs, you are ineligible that year for the postseason. I think that the NFL should find a way in its next CBA to make it. If you are suspended for specific things like a heinous crime or if there is sexual assault allegations these are things that you should be ineligible for the playoffs you know what makes it even more disgusting and worse is that he said he has sat here every time he has spoken to the media about this and first said i'm innocent i didn't do anything and then apologizing to the victims and then going right back to i'm i didn't do anything i'm innocent it, Dude, just shut up, take the suspension, and go away for 11 games so people can try and get past this rather than putting yourself in front of the media. Yeah, this whole situation is just... I'm ready for it to come to an end because I hate hearing all the stuff with Deshaun Watson. I, I Not that I'm not... not I'm not. I'm supporting the suspension from the NFL. I'm just tired of hearing about it because I'm. I'm tired of hearing Deshaun Watson trying to defend himself. When, as you guys have mentioned, this is just such a gross situation. How everything basically played out in favor of Deshaun Watson. I was really hoping the NFL was going to get the indefinite suspension, but it looks like they decided to settle because I, I think they feared that they weren't going to be able to get. A, 11 games out of it if they want took this thing to the court and let the judge decide it so i'm glad to see it's 11 games glad he's fined five million dollars would have preferred to be the indefinite suspension and to alex's point miss out on the postseason but the way the browns are going to play without him he may not get the postseason did anyways. you see who they're playing in his first game back good old houston yeah you know Deshaun did that one on purpose i'll do 11 games they're scheduled down the stretch and he gets a bye week to come back from yeah. too uh, I'm not mistaken, no. right? Their bye is in week nine. Oh, I thought they had it at week 12. He's so, got 11 bye weeks. He is missing the Tampa Bay game, which he was probably like, ah, I'm good. I don't, I don't need to be back for that one. I'll, I'll come back against Houston. Uh, Houston, Cincinnati, Baltimore, New Orleans, Washington, and Pittsburgh down the stretch is what he will end up playing in those six games. So for them to make the playoffs this year, just to kind of change the subject over to the football side of things for the Cleveland Browns, They'll probably need to go like four and two, five and one down the stretch, which means that they've got to start the season right around 500. And unfortunately, given what their schedule looks like early on, I think there's a distinct possibility that they could still make the playoffs even without him being a part of it. I team. would too, because I think Jacoby Brissett is going to at least be okay for them and they still have the running backs. So I think they can stay competitive until Deshaun comes back and then end the season on a five, six win streak. And what a shock if they went and got Jimmy G. Phil they said they yeah, they said that apparently they're, they're out on Jimmy Garoppolo, which I was surprised by. I but thought they said that, that they, they would be willing to look at upgrading the position, which they, there are none really right. other than Jimmy. Uh, well, what I guess I mean, I guess they mean by that is somebody who can at least compete with Jacoby. Not Sam Darnold, maybe. The, Maybe get him from Carolina. Yeah, stinks, what's Cam but... Newton doing these days? <laughs> not not playing. There was one other thing that I wanted to get to. Tanner, we've got the audio from Aaron Rodgers talking about his wide receivers. Oh. I don't know if you guys saw this, but <laughs> this, is good. this is the latest evidence of what I have been saying now for, what, a year and a half? Aaron Rodgers is miserable. 
young guys, you know, they got to, especially young receivers, we got to be way more consistent. A lot of drops, a lot of, uh, you know, bad route decisions, run the wrong route. We got to get better in that area. You keep dropping the ball, you're not going to be out there. So it's going to be the most reliable guys that are out there. You know, if you're going out there and dropping the ball and, and somebody else behind you is in the right spot all the time and catching the ball, that guy's going to play. Yeah, man. Hey, he's not miserable. And if he is miserable, it's because the Green Bay Packers are miserable. You know what's a really good way to give your wide receivers that are young and new and playing with a future Hall of Famer that is probably pretty intimidating for the first time? You know how to, how to give them confidence a week and a half before the season begins? Don't to catch the Talk, talk about how they suck and they're doing all of the wrong things and mm-hmm. saying this publicly in front of the media. Get thicker skin. What a... Hey, maybe his wide receivers are dropping the ball. Yeah. What's your job in the NFL? Yeah. To catch the damn ball. Correct. And you talk to them about that individually. No, you take it to the media. This is ridiculous. And then after you say it, you show your Nicolas Cage statue that you carry in your locker room. Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers is strange. Apparently learned about love and he had the 10,000 hands that were touching him as he had this psychedelic. He said this as he had this psychedelic stuff. Yeah, this guy did it on the Ferris wheel. (laughs) I uh, I hope they go five and 12 this year. I've never rooted for anything harder. I I want them to win five games. I hope Detroit wins that division this year. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> hey, I'm with you, man. I love hard knocks. Their their defense, the Packers' defense, is too good for them to be that bad. But God, I hope that they suck this I year. I think they're like what nine and eight, ten and eight. Or I think ten they're seven, seven, excuse something me. like that. I don't even know if they're that. I, I think they're still a playoff team, but I think they're a team that like sneaks in and then they get bounced in the first round. I mean, they That's got they, they got are. good weapons around them. So I mean, you still have Aaron Jones, you still have that defense, like you still have really good pieces. Yeah, they're they're a good organization, and he's just a miserable human being. So coming up next, you're gonna want to hear what just happened in the Cardinals game. We'll tell you what it was next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Albert hits it out to deep left. It is gone. It's a grand slam. 690 off the bench. Pools, pinch it, grand slam. Ollie Marmel woke up today feeling a little dangerous. <laughs> Katie Wu tweeted, Ollie chose violence. It is the third inning against the Rockies. <laughs> The bases were loaded, and by the way, that wonderful call from Danny Mack, number 690 for Albert Pujols in his career. Um, Albert Pujols comes up to the plate with the bases loaded in the third inning, bottom of the third, to pinch hit for Brendan Donovan. Why did he do that, you may ask? Because Austin Gomber was in the game because their starter for the Rockies went out with what appeared to be a torn ACL. We don't know that to be true, but it looked like a torn ACL to me. And Austin Gomber is a lefty. So what did Albert do? Or what did Ollie do? He pinch hits for the lefty with Albert Pujols, who absolutely (laughs) mashes left-handed pitching. (laughs) Ollie chose violence. And he goes out there and (laughs) hits a grand slam because, of course, it was 6-0. If I'm Gomber, I'm just giving him that home run. I, Oh, my God. Nolan Gorman just hit a moonshot, too. Uh, Well, he went to the warning track. Bernard caught it. 
Albert Pools, again, I, I know that we're going to get some of these texts. Guys, should you be playing Albert every day? No, this is the exact scenario as to why he is utilized the way that he is. Albert is mashing lefties, guys. That is okay. It's okay for him to just be in this role and to be nothing more and nothing less. He is one of the most valuable right-handed hitters off of the bench or as a starter in all of baseball right now. There are... What, like maybe one or two guys and one of them happens to play for the Cardinals and Paul Goldschmidt that you would rather have at the plate this season than Albert against lefties. And then whenever you turn it over to what he's done against right-handed pitching, it hasn't been good from start to finish this season. It's okay. That's all right. If he gets a couple of starts here and there against righties, that's fine. You get, get guys days off. To answer the question of should he be starting more against right-handed pitching, the answer is no. He should not be. But what he's doing right now against lefties, this is special. I mean, th- I, I couldn't have asked for anything more than this from Albert Pujols in what is his swan song here in St. Louis. And I hope they continue to do it this way because we will we will end the career of Albert Pujols in St. Louis reminiscing about the guy we saw for 10 years here. If they end the season where he's hitting against righties just as much as lefties and he struggles – He's still going to mash home runs, but I think we're going to sit there and be like, oh, yeah, Albert, it was it was time for him to call it. Now we are spending every day of the week saying, should Albert Pujols not retire because he's this good? This is the way that I wanted Albert's final season to go in St. Louis. I wanted him to have a shot at 700. I wanted him to look like what Albert Pujols looked like for 10 seasons in St. Louis. And I wanted him to make this team better rather than just be the guy that's getting his final curtain call season in Major League Baseball. Yeah, that that was my big concern going into this was, okay, well, if Albert's not the same, how am I going to remember Albert in St. Louis? I'm still going to remember him finally. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't going to be like, oh, Albert wasn't good. No, he's a Hall of Famer. For heaven's sakes. But like you look at his numbers against left-handed pitching, like that's the Albert of old. It's like watching the Albert of old, yeah. even though it's a different version of I mean, his OPS is above thirteen hundred <laughs> against left-handed pitching, I believe is what it is. It's over a thousand. It's at one point zero five four with a three fifty-four batting average. <laughs> Good God. That's what it was like watching Albert in his prime. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm seeing him do it against left-handed pitching. And it gets right-handed pitching, he just doesn't have the same thing. He doesn't see the ball as well as bat speeds down against him. He even knows that, and that's why it's so fun to see. I know that it would be awesome to see him get to 700, but I didn't have that expectation, honestly, going into this season because I knew he was going to get a limited amount of at-bats. I just wanted to see him play like the Albert Pools of old, and that's what I see when he's going against left-handed pitching. Against right-handed pitching, I see an Albert that struggles. Against left-handed pitching, I see the guy that I fell in love with the game of baseball watching, and that's Albert Pools, essentially in his prime still at the age of 40-something, hitting lefties. And can I be honest with you guys? Like, 700 would be cool. Don't get me wrong. But it's a round number. It's a big deal. I, I understand why everybody's rooting for it, and, and I am as well. And now that it looks like it's I, – I don't know that he's going to get there, but it, it's at least attainable at this point. You yeah. you need 10 to go in the rest of the season. It, it's possible you're he see, could get there. You'll see 10 lefties at some point. <laughs> yeah. Him getting to 697 is what I really want to see. Surpassing A-Rod? I want to see him beat A-Rod. Mm-hmm. That, that is, for the modern era in the last, what, 40 years – that is the the home run total that I want to see him pass because of the guys that are not taking steroids of the last 30 years. Um, right now, pool's number one, but you pass A-Rod, like, 
that's a big deal, man. Getting to 697 for me, that's that's the number. That's the number that I want to see him get well, to. And it's not just, look, the 700 would be incredible and 697 would be incredible. But think of all of the people he's going to be surpassing by the end of this season. I mean, he's it's it's hits, it's total bases. Heck, I don't know how many more pitchers. Danny Mack has been talking about it, and I apologize for not knowing the number. But the amount of pitchers that he's hit a home run off of, he could be number one in that category. second right now, right? I think he's like three away from being first. Like, he might now be too. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if he's ever hit one off of Austin Gomer, but that's the thing. It's 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 so many different records with Albert Pujols. Like, yes, yeah, 700 would be monumental, but I'm more looking at how this season is going to go with Albert Pujols because at the end of the year, you could be talking about 700, but you could be also talking about a World Series run with a swan song of Yachty, Albert, and Wayno. And by the way, so I, I just want to get this out there because I tweeted it, so I, I should say it on the air as well. Michelle tweeted out, and I, I know there are people that take the opposite view on this, and that, that's fine. I, I just disagree with it. She tweeted, if you'd rather have to pick one for this season, would you rather see Pujols get to 700 home runs or the Cardinals win the World Series? If you're telling me right now I can hit a button and one of those two things is guaranteed to come to fruition, not only would I hit the button of of the Cardinals winning the World Series this year, Albert Pujols would hit the button of the Cardinals winning the World Series this year. The celebration of 700 would be super cool, and we would spend the next day on this show doing nothing but celebrating Albert Pujols. The celebration for Albert, for Yachty, for Wayno, as they have a parade in St. Louis would be so much cooler. So much cooler. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of this just in my head, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like at the end of the season, if Albert calls it, and he ends the year with 700 but no World Series, or he ends it with 697 and a World Series, I feel like the narrative around Albert Pujols will be more talked of the fact that he finished his season with a career year, not a career year, but near a career year against left-handed pitchers. He hit 18, 19 home runs in the season, but he won a World Series. So he's at 10 right now. He needs, what, eight more to, or yeah, seven, seven more, more to get there. So yeah, he'd have 18 home runs this year. That, that, and his age 42 season. That narrative, winning a World Series, I just feel like would be talked about a lot more. And, and maybe I'm things, right? And he came back to St. Louis to finish with a storybook ending. Yeah. He got to 697. He beat A-Rod. He got above him on the all-time list. Or even if he doesn't. Like, even if he did go into a little bit of a cold spell here. But then you have some big home runs potentially in the playoffs against left-handed pitching, and he gets it done. And him and Yadi go out together. We'll see what happens with Wayno, and they do it with the ushering in the next era of Cardinals baseball mm-hmm. with Arenado and Goldie. And you're seeing Gorman and what he's doing, and Dylan Carlson becomes a fixture. He has some big moments because everybody's going to have to if you end up winning in the playoffs. Man, that is so sweet. Winning a World Series, like there are guys that come back from 2011 and 2006 that were above average players in their major league careers, but they come back and they were heroes here in St. Louis because they're champions. That's what it means to win a World Series. Getting to 700 is super cool. Winning a World Series means that you are a legend forever in this town. Sorry, somebody texted in and said Albert walks off the Angels in the World Series with Yachty on base for number 700 in Game 7 of the World Series. Okay, couple things. Angels don't make the World Series. <laughs> Angels don't make the playoffs, and you don't get 700 in the playoffs. Yeah, way to really sorry. bring us I'm down. Sorry. Like, that was Dream cool, scenario, but... I'm sure, yes, but I, uh, I apologize. Well, I was going to say, and it's it's kind of unfair because we'll always remember here in St. Louis that you know Albert reached 700 while he was a Cardinal, but there's one thing that you 
won't see at the ballpark that you would see, and that would be the banner. The banner would always fly forever above that scoreboard out in right field. It would say 2022, and you always Legacy remember. Albert's already secure. Yes. He's the all, greatest yep. right-handed He's hitter of the generation. He's got a statue in front of Bush Stadium no matter what. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the greatest to ever do it. None of that changes. If he gets to 700, 695, 697, none of that changes. It's already secure. If he goes out with the World Series and he does it with some of these other guys that are already on the team and Yachty going out, man, that that's different. That That's different. All me. I know is that call. Uh, I mean, as as much as you sit there and you remember the moments from Albert, like I'm always going to remember 2011 where he hit the three home runs in the game. I'm going to remember that one for a really long time. And thank you for Ollie for looking at this and saying, bleep the Colorado Rockies. Let's end it in the third. Six, nothing. That's now, nothing. Now I want Albert to throw a couple of innings. Oh, the rewind the is next. Right. Albert hits it out to deep left. It is gone. It's a grand slam. 690 off the bench. Pools pinch it. Grand slam. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101. ESPN. from today's show be sure to check it out on the podcast page 101espn.com and the free 101 espn app is where you find it it's all presented by dobbs tire and auto centers you could hear me being a wet blanket on albert pujols that was uh real fun Gross. to do we also talked about the lineup and what ferris they're wheel do against right-handed moments. pitchers we talked about ferris wheels as well check out the podcast especially that junk drawer segment alex i know you're doing something really cool with a uh, school supply drive tell the good people how they can get involved to make uh make the community a little better yeah well come on out and bring some school supplies with you because it's the summer of giving school supply and i will be up at lou fuse chrysler jeep dodge and ram this saturday 3480 state highway k in o'fallon missouri you come by you drop off some school supply donations heck i'll take pictures too if you want to nobody wants to but you get a chance to win the grand prize which is a three night stay at the dreams jade resort and spa in riviera cancun courtesy of travel house and i'll be giving away pairs of tickets every 15 minutes for the upcoming blues season home games this saturday lou fuse out in o'fallon missouri for more details check it out 101espn.com so, Alex, you and Tanner are going to be getting out of here. I'm just getting started. I've got another yeah. four hours of radio in me. It's going to be gonna a fun day you, with Jamie Rivers on the fast lane. I was just about to say, you have done a phenomenal show today. You should take the rest of the day off. I will not be doing that. You will be doing the double duty tomorrow. I've got it today. Only five hours, though. Let's finish off with this as we hit the rewind. Jerk. The Cardinals are very likely. There's no way to even BKO this. The Cardinals are very likely oh to take God. a full sweep of oh. this three-game set at home against the Colorado Rockies. Why would you do that, man? They now have in their next eight games, three in Arizona and five in Chicago against the Cubs. I said coming into this, I want to see the Cardinals win eight of these 11 games that included this series against the Rockies. Have you guys changed your tune on what a successful 11 game stretch would look like now that they've won most likely the first three games of it? No, I'm I would have been happy if they won seven of the 11, eight of the 11 or more than that fantastic because in my opinion seven of the 11 you were going to widen the gap in the nl central already because milwaukee had a gauntlet of a schedule but if you go beyond that 
I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm ecstatic for what this team did, especially going into a brave series. If you can find a way to sweep the Rockies and take two of three or sweep Arizona, you tell me a more confident bunch going into an Atlanta brave series than a team that just did that. I, I thought seven of 11 was a good goal heading into this stretch. I now think eight of 11 is the target because that would mean taking two of three from Arizona and then also three of five in yeah. Chicago. So the Chicago think, one's the interesting. Yeah, one. Yeah. I think eight of 11 now is the minimum in which I say this is a success because I, at first I thought you may lose a game in this Rocky series because it's so hard to sweep a team. And that's why I thought seven 11 was going to be the perfect number. Now I look at it and I say, okay, you started off with a sweep. 8 of 11 needs to be the minimum. That needs to be the goal in the stretch How before you take Atlanta on. Cardinals now have scored 5-plus runs in 14 of their last 19 games. You want offense? Just like we said at the trade deadline, like you want to see what this pitching does now with these additions, they did it. You want offense? Well, they're showcasing that they can smash the baseball. I mean, how many times had Nolan Arenado said to the media in the first half in particular, and by the way, we just got another home run today, this oh, one coming, by the way, Lars. of Lars Newtbar, who Pujols is, is going to the plate, Let's crushing go. right-handed pitching yet again. I mean, the, the way that this is all coming together, the playing of the splits, we were talking about this off-air, they, they have started to utilize the splits in a way, the platoons in a way that Super advantageous for them, and that's going into the runs run production that you're talking about. Arenado, going back to that original point, had talked ad nauseum early in the season about how this team just didn't play complete games yet. They had the pitching going, and then the offense would go cold. They had the offense going, and the pitching would go cold. And now you're finally starting to see them put it together. Starting pitching's been good. The offense has been good. The one thing that now you would like to see them really bolster is the bullpen, but because the starting pitching has been so good and the offense has been so good, hasn't been a huge question mark just yet. But that's the last piece that needs to come together for this team to really fire on all cylinders. And I think you'll get a better picture on the bullpen when you see this series against the Atlanta Braves. Agreed. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. They'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fastlane with me, Jamie, Andrew Marsh coming up next here on 101 ESPN. BK, man, these things happen. It's natural. What? Don't be judgmental. This isn't a rain shower. (laughs) You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. On November 13th, it's the dawning of a new era when the NFL debuts in Germany live on NFL Network. Brady and the Bucks. Touchdown, Tampa Bay! DK and the Seahawks. Puts the ball up, making a catch! Wake up and watch with the world. It's Sunday morning football. Live from Munich. Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern, only on NFL Network. Peloton, let's go! This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.